Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week I'm sitting down with King of the Hill director for a beer can named Desire, Mr. Chuck Austin. In this episode we talk about the late great Johnny Hardwick, how Chuck composes a scene, and some of his fondest memories, and so much more. If you haven't yet, you should check us out on Patreon. We're offering three tiers with a lot of fun perks. Some of those perks included in the three tiers are a special shout out to all the patrons, question priority, early and ad-free access to the audio and video chats, voting on our upcoming retrospectives, and so much more. Now, let's get on to my chat with the great Chuck Austin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's My Head Podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Today, I'm joined by Chuck. Chuck, man, welcome to the show. Thanks, Julian. It's nice to be here. Oh, man, it's nice to have you here, man. So uh, we're continuing our deep dive into King of the Hill. And usually I'll ask people, what was your first day at Film Roman? Like, what was your first day on the series? Like, who were you working with for your first day? However, when you gave me the list of episodes to talk about, I knew there was one in particular that I had to talk about first before we talk about Film Roman in your first days, man. But Beer Can Named Desire, you said this one was your first directing job. This one has got some of the most quotable lines from every character in this series, right? Uh, from Bobby being a dandy to 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 Joe Bear and 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 all of these other uh, just amazing characters, amazing lines throughout this series. So I would Dixie love Chicks. to know, and the Dixie Chicks, man, you know, which uh, I didn't realize until I got a little bit older that that's who they were, and I was like, damn it, that makes so much sense now. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I would love to know how does this one come across your how does this one come across your desk? Well, it actually came across Chris's desk. Chris Muller. He was the he was the director at the time, but not very shortly after he started the job, and I was his assistant director. He got a job at Pixar, so mm -hmm. he left Film Roman and went up to Pixar, and they moved me into the directing position. And I uh, pretty much, for the most part, with uh, Paul Scarlatta's help. Uh, as a sort of a an uncredited assistant director um wound up helping me get the the thing over the finish line so um uh so that's really how it happened to me uh, but um as far as that like I, I was really excited to work on it because I, I i don't know if you knew this but i actually started on the other side i started working with greg and the writers as the production coordinator on king of the hill before i came over to work at film roman so mm -hmm. Um, so I had uh, I had heard from Jim about the script, Beer Can Named Desire, and I think it was Richard Pell's tenure that we were working on it. And uh, I was really excited about it. Jim and I had a great friendship, and I was super excited to work on his one of his scripts. And and the when I first read it and then found out that the Dixie Chicks were going to be in it, and then um, uh, Meryl Streep on top of mm -hmm. that, uh, I it's just it was like how much more charmed could it possibly be? You know, um, I was very excited to be able to work on it. What was that like going from one side of production to the other? Did you feel like you were out of, not out of your depth in a bad way, but did it, did you ever feel like I don't belong or, or how did that whole process work for you? You, uh, you mean from production coordinating to storyboarding yeah. and yeah, to and, storyboarding and directing. Um, it actually, it, it's. I had been working in video games for a number of years, and then moved to Los Angeles to to get into acting and filmmaking. So I had intended to never draw again. Mm -hmm. So I actually, I had been I had been working on the Fox lot, installing, believe it or not, installing computers and software for the various different shows that they had. Like uh, at the time, there was uh, NYPD Blue, and no, I didn't. Was it NYPD Blue? It was. Uh, I think it was NYPD Blue, um, Space Above and Beyond, The X-Files, um, you know, a bunch of other shows that were there at that particular time. 
and Chris Carter was just getting ready to start up a new show called Millennium and they needed a writer's assistant. And that was a direction that I was really interested in. So they interviewed me for that position and they gave me the, the dailies and, and the pilot to watch so that I could kind of get a feel for the show. And at the same time, my roommate was working for Joe Boucher as his production coordinator on this new show, King of the Hill that she, that they were doing. And she thought it was really funny. She was very excited about it, but she hate, she didn't like animation. She wanted to work in live action and I watched all the Millennium stuff and I'm not a horror guy. So as I was watching it, I thought, I don't know if I can work on this show. I don't know if I'd be good at it. And so she sort of talked about the two of us kind of swapping, like she would go work in live action and I would go take her job on King of the Hill. So I went and talked to Joe Boucher and interviewed with him and and he hired me. And uh, I was actually really excited about it because I was going to be able to work on something that at least I had an understanding of, but a mm -hmm. show that was animated and, and drawn. Uh, I had worked my entire career as a professional artist up until that point, but I didn't have to draw anymore. And so, um, and, and I loved working with, with Greg and the writers. It was, it was a, every day. It was a massive learning experience. You know, Greg was Greg and particularly David Zuckerman and, and uh, Jim Dotry, who we talked about uh, all the writers, Abel and Berger, um, they were all, they were all, very nice people and they were all teachers joe stillman was there at that point john collier there were a whole bunch of really great just really really wonderful human beings and they were all about paying it forward they were all about if you want to learn i will talk to you about it and i will teach you about stuff so so um you know i got to sit in the writer's room and watch them work which is mostly them staring at the ceiling trying to come up with jokes so it wasn't <laughs> as exciting as it seemed but um i got to know that's how i got to know johnny hardwick actually um he had come in as a as a stand-up comedian, uh, Greg had gone to see him in a, a stand-up show in Austin, liked him, and asked if he wanted to to write and work on the show. I'm not exactly sure how he wound up doing the voice of Dale Gribble, but uh, but he came out and and he and I were he's a little was just a couple of years older than me, so we got along really well. And he he was a new transplant; he never expected to be living in L.A. He he often would talk about feeling like, in some ways, he 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 lucked out into the job to be able to even be a writer and an actor. He said, I was just a stand-up guy and I, I was in the right place at the right time. And um, so, um, so he and I, you know, kind of bonded over the fact that we were new there and didn't know that many people. And, and, uh, and, and it was, it was really fantastic. Um, uh, I, I had a terrific experience, but uh, during the course of it, they found out that I could draw. I would help them to, to, I would talk to them about boards that were coming in and discuss things like, you know, the visual storytelling. They were, Greg was very, very specific that he didn't want it to be just another Simpsons retread. So mm -hmm. a lot of times they would have Simpsons board artists come on to work on shows and they would do the King of the Hill storyboards in a kind of a Simpson-y, with a kind of a Simpson-y look or feel. And, and he didn't like it. He didn't even want to look at it. And there were times when I had to say, well, you know, I, I agree with you, but this he's nailing these guys are nailing the jokes they're making it yeah. funny they're hitting it the right they, maybe we can get the, the the layout people to make it look more like the show that you want but i think you want the comedy that's coming through there and that's actually how i became friends with chris muller because he was one of those board guys that they were really they really didn't want him to be involved in the show um so um geez i'm sort of all over the map here am i answering your question or am i uh, <laughs> You, you are. I love when you guys do this because it leads into stories. Anytime that I can just sit back and relax and not have to poke and prod you guys for stories and you guys get to tell me because you don't get to hear this type of stuff. You don't get to hear that 
you and Johnny were friends that, you know, I'd heard Johnny came in and he came in for, I, th- I think he started with the writing and then the voice. And then I've had a few people tell me that, uh, you know, he, he was Dale and Dale was him, you know, it was like one hand was the other, you know, so getting to know that he was coming from a stand up that he was a transplant to LA. I mean, knowing that you guys were friends and, you know, he's only a couple years older. So you guys bonded over certain things. You guys had that outside looking in type of feel. That's what it sounded like, at least uh, when you were explaining that to me, it was like you guys were uh, doing something new and you guys were learning together and you guys were both on the same level as far as uh, progression in you guys' field. So, yeah, I, I love when you guys expound upon these stories and, and, and tell these behind the scenes stories. Um you know, circling back to 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 what you were just saying, um, two things really. Uh, one, I don't want to get off of Johnny for just a second, but uh, I, I feel like it'd be really important to uh, talk about what you had just said with you knowing uh, storyboarding because they had found out you were an artist, um, and you did that before you were writing for King of the Hill. How vital would you say is that uh, being a storyboard oh, artist, or just what's that? Just to, just to clarify, I wasn't writing for King of the Hill. I was the production coordinator, so I was oh, a production coordinator. The PAs and stuff like that. Yeah. They let me okay, sit cool. in the writer's room to learn, but I was, I never, never wrote on the show. You never wrote on the show. Okay. All right. Well, no. I spoke on that one. So, uh, but yeah. how, how vital would it be from going from directing to storyboard? Obviously it's like, you know, you got to level up. So you probably start out as a storyboard as a revisionist and then you work your way up the ladder. And then eventually if you're good enough and you're, you, you know, you hold out long enough, you probably be a director, but how vital was that uh, you being doing what you're doing knowing the art form and then seeing that stuff come in and then being that buffer zone between you and the artist and Greg. Well, it was, um, it was interesting and unexpected, but that was, that was sort of how, when you're doing something, okay, keep in mind at the time that King of the Hill was something very unique that had never really been done before. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they, Greg was trying to maintain that, that Mike judge art style that, you know, from some of the original sketches that Mike had done of the characters, he really wanted to mm-hmm. keep that look. He, he wanted to keep sort of the rough, realistic feel, naturalistic feel. Like um, Mike had a lot of rules about acting that you don't do. That's sort of like typical animation acting. Um, like, uh, for example, it, I don't know if you've ever, I, you can see this, but there's a lot of times when animators will do this shorthand where they do um, the, sort of the broken wrist thing where people will gesture and they'll do this open, what we call twinning, where you have both hands do the same thing and you sort of open it. Um, and gesture and it's not a natural way of talking but it's it's a shorthand that a lot of animators wind up using well mike never wanted us to use that he always wanted us to uh, be really careful about drawing uh, naturalistic hand gestures and and uh, having people communicate the way that real people communicate when they gesture and like kind of like what you and i are doing when we're talking now the head nods the all that stuff so the subtlety of the acting it's something that had never really been done before uh, on a, a you know full full professional level uh, that uh, that I'm aware of, other than maybe something like Johnny Quest, and mm-hmm. uh, that was not a comedy. So so we were we were in uncharted territory. So there were a lot of things that Greg wanted that, and he was he was a bit of an artist himself. He had done some drawing in college, so there were things that he wanted to be really sure of. But he was not uh, always a hundred. He would he sometimes he would get so busy and and he had so many things going on that he would get distracted and and miss the um some of the stuff that was was the gold in what was happening there the nuances yeah sort of the nuances and the subtlety and and the fact that jokes would land i mean one of the hardest things with a a sitcom is to have storyboard people who can land the jokes who Mm -hmm. can even tell what the jokes are um one of greg's 
uh, overwriting notes all the time was don't cut on a punchline. And I, nobody really at first understood what he meant, but what he was talking about is that when you change the camera angle, what he, what he knew as a visual person was that if, when you change the camera angle in the middle of a joke setup to show, to reveal the punchline, the audience is absorbing new visual information when that happens. And so you can wind up killing the joke because, mm -hmm. uh, because you're the, the, you're challenging both sides of the brain at the same time. And the joke doesn't register because the audience is registering the new, the new camera angle. So that's a lot of times why two, two camera, um, uh, sitcoms work the way that they do. You're either showing camera angles that they've seen before, so they're already comfortable with the change, or you you hold static on for the setup and for the punchline, and that that has the audience focusing on the joke specifically. So those were like some of the specifics that he was really careful about. But um, but sometimes he would look at something um, because of the cartoony way that it was drawn, and not necessarily see that the artist was landing those visual gags that he was really looking for. Um, and it became, he, and sometimes he was absolutely right. Sometimes they, they weren't hitting it, but, um, but there were times when I could say, um, and he was open to it. I mean, I was just the production coordinator on the show, but he would, he would listen if I would say, Hey, you know, but so what happened is that over time he recognized that, okay, I, I was an artist and I could understand things. And sometimes he would have a difficult time communicating to the animators. And I knew what he was trying to talk about or explain. So I would do a quick sketch on a post-it note and show it to Greg. He would say, yes, that's what I mean. And I would give it to the to the board team or the the storyboard team so that eventually led to me wind up going over to um film roman because as they explained it to me um i can get three guys to replace you tomorrow for being a production coordinator we're having a real hard time staffing up good artists over it uh on king of the hill and you can already draw the show you already even understand the show so they wanted me yeah, so they actually basically said you're fired. <laughs> go, go work for us over on the on the uh, animation side. So, I I literally one week I was working as the production coordinator on King of the Hill, and the next week I was over at Film Roman, working as a storyboard artist. And so there wasn't really it wasn't a huge shift for me, and it was actually a lot more money. So um, it's not that I objected, but um, I had actually come down here to stop drawing, and and now I was going back to a drawing job. Um, and uh, and I missed those guys. I missed working on uh, on the, the the actual creation of the show. Jim Dotrieve and I, you know, the thing is that when you're working on on the on a show like this, uh, like like for example, Greg and I just were always around each other. Me, him, or me, or Mark McJimsey, or because we were always there. We were there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I was there twenty four seven for four or five days in a row. I would bring a sleeping bag in, and I would sleep in the little office around the corner from mine, and then you know in the same clothes come back you know around to my office the next morning to, to get work done because there was just so much stuff that had to be done and especially in that first season so you wind up working um a lot of hours in the same building they bring you lunch they bring you dinner and so you're you wind up hanging out with these guys all the time you become really like johnny and i i think i think maybe we had lunch outside the building maybe twice mm -hmm. um most of the time i would eat with him and or, and the and the writers or the you know the um, the um, PAs or the receptionist or it was it was always somebody that was around the office. You were just always always there. So I went from that to what was almost like a nine to five job where I went out to lunch with people and had a life outside of the office. And um, and believe it or not, I missed those long hours with those guys. David Zuckerman, um, I I absolutely loved that guy. His office was pretty much across from mine, and he. He was just such an amazing sweetheart. And he was, 
he was always there to sort of, he, he was like this like big brother for me in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, even though I think we're probably very close to the same age, if he's a little bit older than me and, but he, he had been here for a while. He'd been working for a while. And so when things would get really tense or somebody would get really upset with me at some, about something, he was always like there to pull me aside and say, don't let it get to you. You know, this is just how the business goes sometimes. And he was just such a great human being and a great mentor. Um, and then suddenly I just, you know, I, I saw him once a year after that yeah. and, and i've seen him probably in 10 years now so um so i missed it i i really that was the big transition and the big change for me now when when that when that transition happens you go from one lot to the next uh was it was it hard to because if you don't mind me asking uh, i don't know if you've ever if you've talked about it before but how come you didn't want to draw anymore if you don't mind me asking uh i had i had been drawing since i was three Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, I had had a brief stint in comics where I got a few small jobs and a couple of them never even got printed. And, um, uh, I had worked really, really hard on a portfolio to do professional illustration, commercial illustration, and the, and the business started shifting over to photography. So suddenly mm-hmm. there were a lot fewer commercial illustration jobs available. I was never, I was never a great illustrator. I always liked telling stories better. That's one of the reasons why I worked in comics, so I could never really get my career to kind of go where I wanted it to. And I was, I was just working constantly to try to make it work or to add to my portfolio. And then I got a job in computer animation for video games, working on, you know, again, 24 seven jobs on, yeah. on uh, some, some difficult time consuming games, worked my way up to being an art director in the business, but um, I was just working all the time and I was drawing all the time. I never had any life outside of the, and after a while I just got tired. I got tired of drawing. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was working for a video game company that sent me to film school to study film technique. And I liked it so much. I said, you know what? I think I want to go to LA and try this instead. It was, it actually turned out to be, it was like once, once you make a small movie for a film class, you start to see, oh, actually, I understand this. I I love movies. I've watched them my whole life. I've, I'm able to translate this, what I do in a, in a visual way. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I may as well try to do it in LA. So I came to LA to do that and thought I would be able to give up drawing. Um, and then I wound up back back in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. Every you time you get them out, you get them pulled right back in. You get dragged right back in, yeah. Well, I mean, it's everybody needs a change of pace. I mean, when COVID hit, uh, I, I got sent home. I like I work in the uh, food industry. I went from the Navy seven and a half years to, you know, I did college for a year and I was miserable. Uh, you know, I got hurt in the Navy. So they told me I'd, I'd not be able to do. I've always wanted to cook since I was 12 years old. I, I've been a fan of Emeril Lagasse. Like I got me into cooking, just flipping the channels. My wow. mom working two jobs and, you know, me having a younger brother and younger sister. So I would usually have to get dinner started, you know, for my mom, because my mom would get home at like seven o'clock at night and trying to fix dinner for two kids or three kids at that time. Um, you know, at seven o'clock at night, it's almost impossible, especially when you've got to get up and do a double shift for two jobs again the next day. You know, so it was that a necessity of helping my mom and then just flipping the channels and seeing Emerald on Emerald Live. And he had an entire crowd just captivated and all he was doing was cooking i was like wow this is so cool it's like he's a magician up there he's got everybody focused on what he wants them to focus on like a movie like a cartoon like a comic book man he's got them focused he's got them in the palm of their hands and uh you know when i get out of the military and i got hurt i was like all right well i can't cook because that's a pretty labor intensive job so 
you know, computers is real. I've never been into computers at all. Like I, if I can turn on a computer or I can do my phone most of the time, if I need something, I'm only 34 years old. So I go to hand my, my oldest son, I've got a 13 year old. I'll go and I hand him my phone. I'm like, Hey, I'm trying to do this. Can you help me out? And they, like, he does it in two clicks and three seconds. And I'm just like, yeah, God damn, this is magic. Right. You know? So I'm going to school and I hear a podcast of all things, a guy named Kevin Smith, filmmaker. And he goes, if you're not doing this, this is right after he had a heart attack. And he said, if you're not doing what you love, man, what's the point? He was like, I almost died and I accomplished everything I wanted to. And he was like, I was content with dying on that table. If I was to go right then and there, he's like, I was content because I got to live my dream. I got to make movies. I got to make people happy. I got to do everything I wanted to do. And I'm sitting there in class and I go, fuck, I need a change of pace, man. This is stupid. I don't want to, I don't know anything about cybersecurity. Who gives a shit? My credit gets stolen at least once a year, it seems. I'm always yeah. having to change my pen and my passwords for Hulu and Netflix. I don't want to do this. So I'm closing my textbook. I'm closing my computer. And then the teacher goes, what are you doing? You're not allowed to leave right now. We're getting ready to take a test. And I'm like, I, I think I'm going to go enroll in culinary school. And then he looked at me. He was an older guy. He's a tenured professor. The professor wasn't very good. Um, he was one of those guys that would just, any questions, he would push you off to the, uh, what do they call those? The professor aides or whatever it was. It was like students that were yeah, working TAs. towards their masters. Yeah. You know, yeah. teacher's assistants. Thank you. And he just would never answer the questions because I was, I was always behind with computer stuff. And I go, I think I'm just going to go enroll culinary school. I don't want to do this. And he was like, well, you're making a huge mistake. And I'm like, well, you're teaching a boring class. I'm barely passing. I'm falling asleep most of your classes. I don't understand any of this. This is miserable. I would hang myself if I had to do this for the rest of my life. I needed a change of pace. I closed the book. I walked across the street to culinary school. I enrolled. And then I don't want to say I've never been happier because I've, I've been happier in some things. But it's, it's, a, it's a drug for some days for work. But it's so rewarding when you get that one person that comes up to you at the end of your shift or that one review or that just that one bright spot in your day was like wow this is the greatest meal i've ever had you guys absolutely crushed it so seeing that man i could completely understand your change of pace of wanting to do something new wanting to challenge yourself in a different uh in a different field so man I, it takes a lot of courage to actually do that man most people just embrace the suck and go along with it you know it takes somebody pretty special and pretty courageous to say i don't want to do this anymore i want to do something i want to do something more challenging so hats off to you man um, you know, and like I said, I, I wanted to circle back to, to a Johnny May. When you think of Johnny, like I said, ladies and gentlemen, we just lost Johnny a couple of weeks ago. Um, the voice of Dale Gribble, the embodiment of Dale Gribble, man. But when you hear that name, Johnny Hardwick, man, is there a story or a memory that comes to mind that you'd like to share with us? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I've been, uh, I was thinking about that during the day today, cause I figured that you would probably ask something like this. Um, you know, the, it, it's, uh, Alan Jacobson, who I think you talked to before, is another one yeah. of one of my um, great friends from from the King of the Hill days. Partly because he also worked. We worked at the Nakatomi Plaza, actually, the uh, <laughs> the building um, where they filmed Die Hard. Uh, mm -hmm. At least for the exteriors, it was a Fox Fox owned a bunch of, or had a leased out a bunch of the uh, floors in there. And Alan was there the first season, um, so that they could sort of really meld the film Roman side with the the Fox side. And so I got to know Alan um, pretty much right from the beginning. Um, but he's the one who told me the other day that Johnny had passed. And, you know, uh, in sort of typical me fashion, the first first few hours of it, it's like, you know, it doesn't really sink in. It takes a yeah. while to kind of sink in. And then as the day days go on, I start remembering moments. I start remembering things. You know, I remember him. I, re I remember, and this is not necessarily like the the greatest or a funny memory or anything. It was just, I remember him being really frustrated because he wasn't, he, he had done the Dale voice for a few episodes 
and he had started to it had, he'd started to evolve it as time had mm-hmm. gone on. And so they were listening to an earlier episode and he realized that the voice had changed and he kind of started freaking out a little bit because he was he was really worried about having lost the voice that they loved. And so I remember him sitting down next to me and he's got a pen in his hand that he's holding like a Dale Gribble cigarette. And mm-hmm. he's trying to kind of over, he keeps repeating the same lines over and over again. And he's like try, trying to find that voice. And he looks at me and he, he it was just, it was actually kind of a, melancholy moment but he looks at me he goes he goes chuck i'm such a fraud i don't even know what i'm doing here i just not i'm not an actor i'm not a writer and i said dude you're 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 great you're fine i said and i said look i've watched cartoons my whole life all the voices evolve as you go along don't worry about it don't beat yourself up about it so um he would get he would get very at times sort of self-effacing about the fact that he like, what am I doing here? How did I get here? How did this happen? And then there were other times where he was just, he was on fire. It's like you said, there couldn't have been another Dale. He would be out there mm-hmm. just nailing the, the humor and and he always knew where the joke was or or where another read was. He would do those funny little Dale screams when he was doing records, like six or seven of them in a row so that they would have a library to work from. And there just wasn't anybody else who could do it. And, mm-hmm. and and most of the time he was he was great with that. But in some ways he he he's you know, he sort of struggled with the kind of this newfound fame in a lot of ways. You know, he was he was he was a big part of that show. Um, you know, and he's working with people who who he knew. I mean, we had, you know, we we're sitting there and Sally Field comes in to act with him and with other people or um uh who else? There was, I mean, there were so many um, oh my god, when uh Willie Nelson came through. Yeah, I thought Johnny was going to freak. I thought he was going to pass out. He loved Willie Nelson. So, um, I mean, everybody did, but just Johnny was just over the moon. Um, so there, I mean, there was a, there are a lot of little moments like that, but there's nothing specific other than just, he was just a, you know, he was a really nice guy. He never, he didn't have an ego. He was never mean. He, uh, I mean, a lot of people would get 10 hours and they, they, exhaustion you know you'd be there morning edit, editing a show that just wasn't coming together and and you couldn't finish it without greg and then he'd be called into another room and and you'd just be sitting there with the writer with nothing to do and he'd be we'd both be sitting there thinking when are we ever going to go home and so um so you had those they were really nice bonding moments but um um i guess i can't really think of anything i don't remember i don't remember ever talking about personal stuff i don't remember I don't even know if he ever talked about his family or anything. You know, it was always about the job. It was always about the work. It was always about the stuff that was going on. I think that's probably in some ways, that's the the most exciting thing, but it's also one of the worst things about the business. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a big part of what's going on with this talk about the, the industry and, and the strikes and, and the vertical integration of all of the, the, uh, the various different corporations to that, um, so much of that is just kind of the way the business is run all the time mm-hmm. and people do it because they love it and they're so passionate about it. But, you know, we, sometimes you need to get out and have a life so that your life will inform the work that you're, the creative stuff that you're doing. And so for the, you know, for the year that I knew Johnny, I knew him in the office and I knew the stuff that we talked about was mostly about work. Um, so well, I mean, I thank really you for sh- Thank you for sharing that, man. And uh, like I said, it, it's, this guy's voice, uh, it, 
before I get into this, there, there was one thing I wanted to hit on that I, I thought was very poignant. Um, you know, you got to have an outside life. You got to have balance, right? It just sounded like Johnny, yeah. that at least for that first little while, he was struggling with imposter syndrome. Like so many people in the creative field go through. You don't know if you're worthwhile. You don't know if what you're doing sucks or if it's good or if somebody likes it maybe. You know, so everybody kind of goes through that. It doesn't matter who you are, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody goes yeah. through it. I've had yeah. voice actors and writers and producers and directors on here. Everybody in a creative field. And even if you're not in a creative field, maybe... Maybe you're a, a, a garbage man or you're, uh, I don't know, man, um, a construction worker and no dig against those professions. But I'm pretty sure there's some days where you wake up, you're like, dude, I can't I can't do this. I suck at this. They're going to fire me as soon as they figure out that I'm not good at this. You know, so I think that's something very human uh, that that everybody, everybody always sees, especially with social media. Everybody sees perfection. They see that final shot. They see that final drawing. They see that final plate. They don't see the 10 drawings it took to get there. They don't see the the four pieces of burnt fish you did before you got that perfectly seared fish, you know? So it, it's, it's, I think a lot of people need to hear that. It's not all fucking sunshine and rainbows, man. Sometimes you go through some hard things and sometimes you really got to work some shit out to get through the other side. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, and you, and you, you're the same. You have, you know, it's all about audience response, you know, how mm -hmm. are they going to react to what you do? So you're, you're, you're taking a piece of your soul. You're working same as us long, long hours. I mean, I, you, I know that most of the people that I know that work in the food industry, they're up really early and they're be to bed really late. Um, and then you, you know, you plate that food and you send it out and who knows, you know, yeah. And, and, and and that you're right. It absolutely is magical when somebody gives you a compliment and somebody comes back and says something nice. But like, it can be a long, agonizing period of time before you hear hear that. You know, while you're waiting on pins and needles. Oh, um, and then, absolutely. Then there were the opposite times. You know, where there were they played back um, voicemails that people would call from all over the country and leave these nasty emails about. Uh, usually about that horrible Bart Simpson, <laughs> which, which was like, that's okay. You guys can complain about the Simpsons all you want. That's not our show. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, we would hear those voicemails sometimes in the morning and, uh, and actually that's actually where boom hour came from. I don't know if you ever heard that. Yeah. But, dang old yeah. buttholes, man. <laughs> dang old buttholes, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I love, like I said, uh, you know, going back to the, to, to Johnny and Dale for just a second, man, I I've been watching this show since I was 12 for 22 years. I've been watching this show. Um, this show came in and I've told everybody that I've had on this from King of the Hill. I mean, there's two shows in particular that I can point to that completely influenced how I, how I behaved and how I acted as a kid and what I wanted to be as a kid. And then what I wanted to be as an adult, man, um, you know, for, for that kid, that kid level, it was always, Hey Arnold, Craig Bartlett's Hey Arnold. It was a phenomenal show. You know, it taught you like really cool morals. It was one of those shows that would talk to you, not at you. It would talk to you, not down to you when, I, you know, for so often or for so long kids animation has a tendency to be very condescending, even though they're not trying to be condescending, you know, they would skirt around serious topics and then water down topics that you needed to hear. Right. They would bump up things that were, you know, commonplace. And then things like, let's just say divorce or death, you know, they would really skirt around. They wouldn't go too heavy into it. And, you know, you don't see too much of that in Hey Arnold. You do see dysfunction. You see, you do see divorce. You do see abuse, both mentally, not so much physically, but emotionally in that. So you get to really figure out how to work and navigate as a kid by watching Hey Arnold. So I got to know what to experience or what to say or what to do in specific, you know, situations if I ever had, you know, that that 
negative that negative situation as a kid maybe a fight or a breakup or anything along those lines i saw it already acted out on the tv in a cartoon so i could that would inform and influence how i would respond and then you've got king of the hill that hit me at that that pre uh pre-teenage stage that 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 pre-pubescent stage and then it informed me on how i wanted to be in as adult man I, I learned so many things from this show at such a young age that I implemented into my life. And like I said, I've been hearing these voices for 22 years. I've been listening to this show. I've rewatched the show seven or eight times. Every time I rewatch the show, I'm picking up something new. I'm picking up a new mannerism, a new Daleism, a new Hankism, a new Bobbyism, a new somethingism, right? And I'm taking something from that and it's informing my life. So even though this show, I can't wait for the reboot, even though the show has been off the air for well over a decade now, I'm still finding things that it it helps me with. I mean, you guys helped me laugh and you guys helped me smile when I was deployed. Three straight wow. deployments, nine months at a pop, right? My first four years of my, of my oldest son's life, completely gone, right? I maybe was home for a total of three, four months and three years, four years, whatever it was, um, because of just deployment, 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 you know? So you guys gave me a, a chance to laugh a chance to decompress when I didn't think it was possible. And I'm out there in the middle of the ocean, missing my wife, missing my home, missing my kid, missing my dogs, you know, missing my country. You know, you guys gave me a reprieve, you know, and I, I can never say thank you enough for that, man. Um, I, I appreciate everything you guys have done from the show, from the writing to the directing, to the voice acting, to the boarding, to the art, to everything about this. This is a perfect show. Um, and one thing I want to circle back to with Johnny before I left, man, when I think of this show, like I said, is this show has informed me uh, in so many different aspects. You know, I told you my favorite episode was Bobby Goes Nuts. You know, Bobby learned self-defense. Yeah. I don't know you. That's my purse. I say it at least once a week. And there's another thing that I always say, man. I don't know how nerdy you are, man. Do you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? Um. Uh, I don't, but my son plays it all the time. In fact, I just dropped him off there before he, I came here to do this. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So I would always I, roll I, a wizard. He talks about it all the time. See, he talks yeah. about it all the time. So yeah, I'm aware, very aware of it. Cool. Uh, so I, I, I would usually play a wizard and I would take, uh, I would take a Daleism and I would always have pocket sand on my wizard so I could throw pocket sand in people's faces, you know? So yeah. I, I took a lot, <laughs> I took a lot from Dale, man. So like I said, greatest character in the series, probably the funniest character ever created for me, him and Cotton Hill, when it comes to, to King of the Hill, two greatest characters of all time. Um, but getting back to, to that episode that uh, we we had talked a little bit about before we went down the uh, Johnny Hardwick and then the Greg Daniels rabbit hole. And I appreciate you sharing those stories, man. I really, uh, I really liked hearing those, um, but beer can name desire. Ladies and gentlemen, this one is where uh, there's an Alamo contest. You know, you get to win a hundred thousand or win a million dollars by throwing a football. Um, it's like a Willy Wonka, but with Alamo beer, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and, they all go to uh to 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 Bill's hometown of Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana, and they get to meet his side of the family. And uh Bobby becomes a dandy. One of my favorite Bobby scenarios he gets put in is Bobby becomes a dandy. The quotes in this one are outstanding. I mean, I used uh, I use it in the Bill Riling episode I had. Uh, you know, I need a window seat because this this flower was wilted, like him and Joe Bear, him just going back and forth. The uh the, that one. And then the other line when they serve dinner and he's like, dinner like youth is served. Um, I, I loved this episode. Like I said, top three episode of all time for me. Um, it's so fun. You know, when you're directing this, you're going from production and now you're going from boarding and now you're going from directing. 
How nervous were you? Was this your first directing gig? Was this the first episode? I think you said this is the first episode you directed for the series. Uh, yeah, it was. It was my first, and it was, it was scary. Um, Chris got this amazing opportunity at Pixar, so he was going to take it, and um, he left, and uh, um, they hadn't been able to find um, a replacement for him or an assistant director, or uh, they they couldn't find anybody basically to sort of step in. So it was the it was not only it was not only a job, but it was a double job because as mm-hmm. the assistant director, I was having to do a lot of that stuff myself. Thank God for Paul Scarlatta helping me out, you know, here and there. Um, but he unfortunately also had to work on other shows at the time, but he did, he did a first pass on the, uh, the, the girls fighting over um, Bill scene in the bedroom. That was just masterful and saved me a ton of work. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, and actually there was a lot of stuff about that. That was, um, uh, amazing and and terrifying and exciting all at the same time it was um first of all i didn't know that i was even going to get the the directing credit for it um as far as i knew they were going to continue they were going to still give uh, chris the directing director's credit on that episode um uh, but after basically getting over the finish line and then even delivering it and having them look at it when we went out there alan actually went with me to, to for the for some of the board pitches and stuff so that uh, he could at least help me to interpret notes and get the notes down and, and understand mm-hmm. them. So, um, so it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough. It was a hard job, but at the same time, it, it was a huge jolt of dopamine <laughs> because yeah. when it worked, when it all started to come together, I was, I was absolutely over the moon. It was one of those things where I, I wouldn't have taken the job on King of the Hill, if my roommate hadn't um, wanted to get out, I mm-hmm. wouldn't have come over to work at Film Roman on the show if um, the the, the uh, production side hadn't insisted that they needed me as an artist more than they needed me as a production coordinator. Uh, I would never have uh, directed the episode if Chris hadn't left. And all of those things were stepping stones on my career that happened in spite of me in a lot of ways. So so f- absolutely fantastic. Uh, I loved it. In fact, I did some things on that episode that a lot of people aren't even aware of. One, we used, it's the first time we ever used CG in an episode really? of King of the Hill. There were three three shots in there. Um, pretty simple, basic shots, the ones that stayed. Where it was, uh, it's an overhead shot of, of Hank pulling into the empty parking lot of the football stadium ahead of time. That's a that's a little CG minivan that's um, pulling into the parking lot there, um, and but then we had a shot that that Rich Appel wound up cutting out because he felt like it was too jarring a difference between the regular show because it was it was beautiful. I worked with Chuck Maiden; he was the, one of the background designers, and and I said, look, what I want what I'm thinking about doing is a CG shot where we use that same van and we draw we put Bill in the back and we ha- we show it driving into the front of the mansion and. Um, I want to take some of those painted trees that you do, and I want to have the, the opening gate of the of the mansion. And it's like they're going into another world. It's like this is yeah. going to be like this completely different place from what we're used to. So I wanted it to feel different and unique. And um, so I so Chuck did these beautiful paintings of the the gate, and we put them on hinges and opened it as the van pulled through. And there, there, the trees were on multiple levels of layers, which is the kind of thing that they do all the time in Harmony now. But at the but then it was something that nobody had ever really attempted, especially not on King of the Hill. 
Um, and we put the shot in and it was one of those shots that was, it was very different, but it was all created by the people who did the work on King of the Hill. So it was, it was, it, but it was just the highest level of King of the Hill because Chuck Maiden put his heart and soul into all those paintings. And when we inserted it and put it into the show as an animatic, it got a huge laugh because it gave everybody that sense that we really wanted, that it was just, holy crap, they're crossing the threshold into something different. But when they saw the full color version, the room kind of went, oh, and that wasn't what Rich wanted. He wanted the mm -hmm. laugh. He didn't want the, holy crap, that looks incredible. Why doesn't the rest of the show look this amazing? Gotcha. Um, so he and I went back and forth about it. And I, he said, why, you know, I explained to him why I did it. I explained to him what my thoughts were behind it. And then he said, well, I don't, I don't know if I can leave it in. I said, I think I, he said, I think I need to take it out. And I said, well, that's entirely up to you. You know, it's your show. It's not mine. And so, but when I saw, when I, I saw when it aired that he had finally decided to take it out, but mm -hmm. um, somewhere they have this beautiful CG entry shot of, uh, of Bill and, and everybody driving into Bill's family mansion for the first time. And it's, it's stunning. <laughs> Dude, so, but it was the first time. It was the first and I think only time, other than Mike DiMartino, who wound up using some. Uh, but he was really down low about it because he knew about my experience. So, I I did some truck movements for him in a in an episode that he did, the one where, mm -hmm. <laughs> where oh, Mister Strickland takes Bobby Gamble with him, <laughs> and then Hank has to rescue him. Um, is that the part some, where he slowed down where he slows where he, down and yeah, that's the yeah, one yeah. That's so, the scene. <laughs> yeah so those trucks we did in cg but mike was wise enough to redraw them all uh mm -hmm. over the top of the cg so that nobody could tell they were cg so um but he he actually used cg in that shot too but those those were as far as i know the only yeah. times that we actually used it in the in the series so i you know so i got to be creative i got to try things that nobody had ever tried before on the show i got to I got to work on this side. I did all of the acting for the Meryl Streep character because mm -hmm. they just weren't happy with it. You know, they thought this is Meryl Streep. It's got to be perfect. So I, I fully animated every head tilt, every eye twitch, everything, because they just kept sending it back and sending it back and sending it back and saying, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. So I finally had to just basically animate the entire thing. So, um, and it was, so it was tiring. It was a lot of hard work but it was uh, incredibly rewarding and um, uh, and people were really happy with it when it was all, when all was said and done. Um, so I even wanted, yeah. I even won. Uh, this is a very strange little side story, but uh, the Swampy Marsh was a, a friend of mine on the show. He went on to create Beavis, uh, uh, Phineas and Ferb, mm -hmm. uh, but he, um, he was the uh, prop designer at the time and everybody loved his name, even though that was just, you know, it was, it was his nickname Swampy. Yeah. And so at one of the big um, after uh, season wrap up parties where they had, the, they invited the animation people and the, the writing people. And we all went together to, the, to a big event. They had a, uh, an award ceremony for um, various different funny gag awards that people got. And I won a Swampy award for, um can you can you guess what it's for is for the uh for the, the, Luan the bayou. now it's for Luan oh. getting excited in the beginning jumping uh, up and down gotcha jumping up and down yeah yeah so i gotta i gotta i have a little award still uh, uh i think it's in the garage now but um uh a kind of swampy award for for basically doing 
boob jiggle. <laughs> well, it's funny because Bill Bill Ryling had talked about one of his favorite scenes or one of the scenes that sticks out the most to him. Um, I think it was Naked Ambition. And it was the same thing with Paul Scarlatta. It was the, it might not have been Naked Ambition, but I, and it might not even been Bill. I know Paul and I talked about it. We just released his episode today for the King of the Hill portion. We did like four hours one night and we split it between King of the Hill and uh, regular show as far as like what we were talking about. Cause regular show is a whole nother thing. Like that show got me back into animation in 2012 when I thought I was completely out. I thought I was completely done with animation. Regular show brought me back in. Um, but, uh, um, Paul had talked about him doing the the Buckley's Angel, the Wings of the Dope. So it's him, oh, him yeah. and, uh, Luann jumping. And then it was the same thing, you know, the old the old booby jiggle. Um, well, that's, you know, that was that was Paul. Paul was known for doing it really, really well. So, oh, he did it really, really well. <laughs> that, that's why we went to him for the uh, the uh, girls fighting over Bill scene. So, oh, I can imagine, man. He 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 was such a cool dude to talk to. Um, like I I enjoy talking to all of you guys because it, it's so fascinating. Like I said, you don't get to hear these stories most of the time. Whenever somebody comes on, whenever you hear an interview, it's like, oh man, you worked on King of the Hill. Who's your favorite character? And I'll ask those stupid questions too. Who's your favorite character? Who'd you like? But I try to put a spin on it where it doesn't seem like or make you have to think or pontificate a little bit more than just like oh it's bill or oh it's cotton or oh it's dale you know what i mean so um fuck there was a point i was gonna make oh uh you know with this episode in particular and you directing it two questions i wanted to hit on one i'll give you both of them at the same time that way if you want to think about one and answer the other you can um what was it like seeing your name in the director's column for the first time and then what scene, if, if you can't pick just one from this episode, is there one or two scenes that you think is tells the entire story of what you were trying to say? Is there one or two moments in this scene or in this uh, in this in this episode? Uh, there are a lot. There are my favorites. Actually, one that I storyboarded um, was um, when Hank loses it and tackles uh, Don uh, Meredith. Dandy that Don, was, yeah. That to me was one of my favorite moments because, you know, the, the what they wrote was you know, the kind of thing that I'm sure goes through a lot of people's heads is like, mm -hmm. you know, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to go with the, you know, the QB or you're going to, you know, attempt, attempt to blow it yourself. You got to go with the odds. Right. And then, mm -hmm. then Don doesn't make it. And it's like, yep, see ya. And then Hank gets really upset, but, um, but then he, <laughs> he takes it one step, step too far and tackles him. So that scene, uh, it, it always stands out to me. And then of course the, the, the girls, um, wrestling over bill because it's to me that was how far away from normal king of the hill that episode had gone uh and so we were you you get to play against sort of type and expectations so bill is is thrilling over this strange turn of events and then the the, the closing shot both of them you know? <laughs> i mean it's it's those are the things that i remember you know partly is because because i you know i i i got to know Stephen Root when I was working with him as an actor. It's one of the reasons why he wound up doing Tripping the Rift with me later, because you know, uh, he, I just loved him so much. And he was just such a really great guy. He was also a comic book fan. So he and I bonded over comic books uh, a lot and talked about uh, a lot of various different things. Some of my friends actually worked on some of his favorite comics. So it, it, he was always, he always enjoyed that. But, um, but I loved, you know, I love the guy. And it's like, so some, those are some of the things that, that, um, I think always stand out to me are sort of sometimes some of those personal things. Cause when he would say both of them, I could just picture Steve standing there in front of the, you know, on the microphone, <laughs> both of them. Um, and it, it kills me. I mean, I, and it, 
I, you know, I loved it. I, I loved all aspects of it. I enjoyed everything about it. And, and even working with Chris was, was fantastic. Chris was my partner for a long time. He helped me co-create Tripping the Rift when we sold it to Sci-Fi Channel. And, um, and um, working with him was just such a pleasure. He was always funny, always charming, um, just a, a, a human fun factory. And, um, uh, it was hard. It was hard when he passed away. I mean, it's, it, it, it was hard talking about Johnny. It's hard talking about Chris. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's hard thinking about Victor. I, I knew Victor, uh, Aaron, he, he had actually invited me up to his, uh, house with his daughter, uh, at one point, um, mm-hmm. just before he was killed in the Canyon. Um, and that was, that was a dark day. Um, I came into the office the next day and, and we all heard and, uh, I thought Greg was going to have to be carried out. He was so upset. Um, it was, that was, that was tough. So there's been a lot of, we lost a lot of good people um, out of that show. So those are the things that I remember. It's, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's those funny, funny bits and, you know, it's, it's getting a swampy award for Luann's bouncing boobs is hilarious, but <laughs> it's, it's those people that you get to know, you know, um, yeah. uh, that become a part of your lives. Um, the um, the script coordinator, she's a fantastic woman on the show. The uh, um, just loved her. Um, it just it, just everybody, 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 everything. And how did I feel when I saw my name in the credits? I almost fell over because I didn't know they were going to give me the credit. Yeah, uh, I I I felt like I had done the work, but I'm I'm one of those people that you sort of accept the hand that you're given. And mm-hmm. if it meant that, you know, I had to finish off the job, but Chris got the credit, that's fine. I would get credit on the next one. But when I saw my name, when I saw the episode come up and I saw my name as the director, I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah. Because it was it was not just the double thing of this is my first directorial debut, but it's um, it's not one that I was even expecting to have. They didn't tell me they were going to do it. Uh, I think it was... Um, it was, I think it was Richard Pell and Mark McJimsey who made that decision at the sort of like at the last minute to do it. And, um, I, I so appreciate it. It was just, it was a, a terrific gesture. So, so, you know, there's a lot of amazing fond memories about, about everything. And it's not even just working on that show. It's working on, you know, the, 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 um, megalomart blowing up. I drew a bunch of, yes. I just drew a crowd scene of people running in front of the burning megalomart and, it was there was nobody in it that you would recognize, but I remember doing that scene and thinking, "Wow, this is you know, <laughs> this is big, this is wild." Um, uh, and I could hear, you know, I, I I could having worked with the actors when I was boarding or or directing or assistant directing or whatever I was doing, I could see the people that I knew performing the lines, so I could. I could get the subtle gestures that Mike was always looking for. So they were, mm-hmm. so it always helped. They always seemed to like what I was doing and always worked out well. It was a really good job. Um, um, I would have stayed a really long time if the, the uh, hiatuses hadn't gotten so long. Um, I wound yeah. up having to leave just to pay the bills. So, yeah, well, like I said, man, uh, it, as always, thank you for sharing those stories. And you've, you brought it up a couple times. And I'd be remiss not to show you. Let me see if I can get them. But uh, you keep bringing up comics, man, so you can see all oh, of those oh, long boxes right there, and that doesn't oh, stop on God. that side. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a still a Wednesday warrior. I'm still in like that one's oh, all wow. trade. 
all back there and I've got so much I'm, I've moved off I've moved from downstairs because we are third we had our third child back in April so um, my old oh, office was thank you uh, we weren't supposed to have one let alone three and then we weren't supposed to have one let alone two and three years um, you know wow. it's a it's a big gap from 13 and we have a two-year-old and then yeah. now we have a four-month-old so it's 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 interesting. They keep you on your toes in the best possible way. Um, you know, Dude. so I'm, I'm still moving all of my shit down here and I'm, I'm so behind on putting, putting comics and in, in boxes. Every time I think I'm caught up, I was like, shit, I need to go buy two new long boxes so I can fit more stuff in here. It's a, it's a sickness at the end of the day. I'm a, I'm a huge, like I said, I still go get my comics every Wednesday. Um, it's, it's, it's such a great art form. I wasn't able to afford it as a kid. You know, like I said, mom works uh, two jobs and there's a bunch of us to feed. So, you know, now that I've made a little bit of money, I can go and uh, get those comic books I couldn't have as a kid. Um, and like I said, I, I love the I love the medium that you guys do. I love the comic books. I love the fact that they they cross pollinate each other as well. So many of you guys that I've talked to have done comics and then have gone over to animation and vice versa. So it's always a blast getting to see what you guys draw influences from and where you go and, and, and what you've done. And it helps influence that work too. Um, one thing before we, uh, before we switched over to, uh, to, to one of the other episodes, man, was uh, like I said, when I think of this episode, the, the writing on this show is like second to none. I got, so you you had mentioned like you would always get those calls like that damn Bart Simpson right like oh, make fun of him it's not our, it's not our show right my mom wouldn't let me watch the Simpsons because of Bart Simpson whenever she would watch King of the Hill or she would see me watch King of the Hill she would consistently say the same thing she said about the Simpsons oh that show is so stupid you're gonna rot your brain yada 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 and it wasn't until many years later right my mom was living down here in Florida with me and uh, she had come in from work and me and my uh, or my son and I excuse me my oldest son at the time um, were sitting there we're watching tv and we were watching the simpsons and then you know futurama came on because we we're watching fox or whatever or we're watching comedy central we're just episode after episode and then king of the hill came on and she's like you're letting him watch that type of stuff and i was like yeah why and she's like that stuff is gonna rot his brain it's so dumb um and i was like mom you would say that but i was like all of these people that writ on, wrote on the show they all come from harvard they all come from yale they all come from stanford they're all coming from all these amazing shows that you watch that you think are so great and i was like how can this show be stupid if you were telling me that these were the colleges that i was supposed to get into or that if i tried hard enough i would have gotten into so they can't be stupid shows if they're written by very very smart people mom needless to say that was like the first and only time my mom has ever been um what's the word i'm looking for uh, caught without words is what I'm getting at. She was, she didn't say anything else <laughs> after that, you know? So I got a one up on my mom on that one. Um, you know, yeah, but, they uh, were they, a lot of the writers on the show were uh, Harvard friends of Greg's. I yeah. Think Brent, I think Brent Forrester was a friend of his and mm -hmm. um, uh, who else? John was, Collier was too. I believe he was John, a Harvard grad as well. John Collier. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were quite a few of them. Uh, Glenn Berger was from Brown. Um, so yeah. Uh, Jim Dotrieve, where was he from? I don't remember, but he was from he was he was super smart guy too. Um, just yeah, it was just a yeah. You're absolutely right. You nailed it. Oh yeah, they, like I said, smart smart folks that were writing on that show. You have to be with as brilliant as that show was. This like like you were saying the the how they would they wouldn't do that twinning of the hands. It was very point. It was one shot, and until you started breaking that that down, I I. I when you started going on about how uh, 
how it had to be just one shot. You didn't want to have them split because it would lose the punchline. I was, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, dude, that's the, one of the most intelligent things I've ever heard. I never thought about that. And like I said, the reason that King of the Hill felt so, or it was so good for me, it was like, I felt like these people were real. I felt like these characters could be somebody I, I had, I have family members that live up in West Virginia that sound exactly like Boomhauer. I've got yeah. fucking cousins that have went through the same shit Bill went through. I yeah. prided myself, like before I saw King of the Hill, I was that weird chubby kid that would use humor to get out of situations like Bobby, right? You know, so yeah. we all had a weird friend like Joseph. We all had that crush that lived next door like Connie, you know? So it was like all of these characters felt real. They always felt like an extension of ourselves or extension of our surroundings. So like I said, that's why this show was so everlasting is because it, it felt like it was real, even though it was animated and it was two-dimensional, man. So you guys yeah. knocked out of the park on, on all fronts here. Um, well, I, have to, I, I don't, I can't, especially the first season, I, I was just like a production guy I, but but i learned at the feet of some masters i'll tell you greg greg was such a teacher i mean that that was just one of the many things that he taught um but there was I mean, there was just all kinds of things that you would pick up on like glenn berger told me one time he said i he i i had said something and made a joke and i i used a number and uh you know got a little chuckle from the people in the room and he goes seven would have been a funnier number and the room erupted <laughs> and laughing and i and i went it, does it really make a difference? He goes, oh yeah, it makes a difference. And he pointed out to me that they actually will workshop which number is funnier, three or seven, you know? Yeah. So that, and that's, that's the level to which they will go to, to, to refine. They, I also learned about suspensive sentences from them, which is not something that I had thought of before. It was something that I sort of instinctively understood, but I never realized that until they pointed it out. And like you, I went, oh my God, there it is. Everywhere you go. A suspensive sentence is where the biggest, punch comes on the last word of a sentence so really? you yeah so you what you don't want to do is have a character hit the punchline in the middle of a sentence because they keep talking while people are laughing gotcha and so you want to have them hit that last sentence and laugh during the pause so that the next line that comes up nobody's stepping on any any more setups or jokes or anything like that and and it also it keeps the audience engaged until that very last word. And so when you get to the last word, it, it, it completely catches you off guard because everything up to that point has been a build. But if you build and hit it in the middle of it, then the rest of it just becomes noise in the background that, that can hurt your joke. So those are just all, like, those are little things that I still carry with me that I never even thought of until I worked with those guys on, in that room. So, or in that building day in and day out. Um, Jim Totrieff used to have some of the funniest ideas and and we could never use them. He he and I went to because Greg was always so busy, he would um he and he also wanted a lot of the guys to be able to have the experience of like running various different parts of the show so that when they went off to do their own show, they would know how to do it themselves. Um he would assign a writer to do things like go with me to record ADR or pickup lines or things like that, stuff that didn't need his full attention. He would just say, we need a better, funnier read of this. And, and I would go with, you know, John Collier or Jim Dotrieve or whoever. Um, but there was this one time Jim Dotrieve and I went to one where, and it was a scene that Steve Root had come in to do. And it was, uh, Bill is dance is going to dance with Peggy. You you probably remember what show <laughs> this is better than I do. Yeah. But it was. Um, the square dancing one where they're trying to find Luann a date after Buckley dubbed her probably. That's probably it. It's it's I've first got season. no life. I'm sorry, Chuck. I've got no life. I'm sorry, Chuck. 
that's okay. It helps me because my memory <laughs> is like gone. I have none, none left. The brain cells have all like, you know, gone their separate ways and live on the other sides of the skull. <laughs> um, so, so he had this idea that this is like, Bill has been attracted to Peggy for so long. Um, and he looked at me and he said, what do you think if we had had him like breathing heavy while he was doing this? Like he can't, like he's starting to lose control a little bit. And I just, I laughed and I said, let's give it a try. And Stephen Root being just the funniest man on the face of the earth, as far as I'm concerned, did the read, breathing heavy while he's saying stuff to Peggy. And it just gave it this extra level of undertone to it. But they, they, killed it they wouldn't let anybody they wouldn't let greg even hear it because he hadn't it was a, it was too far a departure from what he would have done himself and so he's got to make those kinds of decisions and i perfectly get that i understand that that's his show but sometimes don't would come up with these absolutely hilarious things that just never would get into the show in some ways because greg was so he was so story focused and so story centric that he didn't want to he didn't want wacky crazy jokes that were muddying up the rest of the the episode so um so some of my favorite moments are sitting with jim dotrieve in the editing bay laughing our asses off about some stupid thing that he came up with that we knew would never get in <laughs> <laughs> there was one where oh i think it might have been the order of the straight arrow it's where they're i think they're lost in the cave and it said uh, the ghost of who oh, is it the ghost of somebody some football player it's the ghost of who was it oh i can't remember uh, you, you got me stumped on this one what is it i can't remember but um and it may and and i may be remembering it because it was maybe a joke that, that dotrieve threw out there that wound up getting cut or not being used it was one of those jokes that only happens in the editing bay but nobody ever hears about and it was like i, I think he wanted to they they kept talking about the the ghosts uh some spirit or some ghost that lives in the caves and and the, the the gist of it was we should have somebody record the ghost voice talking back to him. And, 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 and Dojri was like, have him say this. And he was like, just riffing on like bad football advice and stuff. And I was yeah. just cracking up and me and, and Glenn, the, the editor were just like dying. Uh, but it's all stuff that, you know, you'll never, nobody will ever see. Nobody will ever hear or be a part of. So those are some of my favorite memories of those, of those shows. Um, well, thank you for sharing this. I keep getting on those weird tangents with you. I'm sorry. I don't know where it's all coming oh, from, but dude, stuff I hadn't thought of in years. Dude, well, I, I get told all the time. It's like I am people's therapists, right? Because this is very cathartic for me. I love sitting down and talking to you guys because you guys, like I said, you helped mold me as a kid and as an adult. You guys like essentially raised me without raising me. I yeah. had many years, many hours sitting in front of the TV as a kid. If I wasn't a basketball practice, I was watching cartoons. If I wasn't, you know, out playing with my friends, I was watching cartoons, reading comic books. So, you know, it's, it's, I've learned a lot of stuff from you guys inadvertently or subconsciously, or what's that word where you're, where you osmosisly or what, I don't even think osmosisly is where it's osmosis through osmosis, you know, by just watching the show and, and just absorbing what, what's going on within the screen. Because there was, you know, you had said if it was too out of the norm for Greg, it just wouldn't make it to him because he had very story focused. It had to be this, this, that, and the other, you know, but looking at this show, you could literally just hit mute and watch the background. Like there's characters in the background that you might see once or twice, but you see a lot of the characters as well that aren't named characters or aren't big characters, but they all have a story. So there's, there's a story you know, two, three stories, maybe in an episode. And then you've got the background characters that are also got stories. So you start to think like, what are those guys up to? So I love how structured everything was. Cause like I said, everything felt perfect. Not one episode. You can't say this about very many shows. In my opinion, 
this show has no filler episodes. There's no episode where I'm like, fuck, dude, I got another 22 minutes of this. Not one, not one episode where I can sit here and say, I'm just going to flip the channel now because I'm bored. You know, and like I said, I've watched the series seven, eight times now. Um, but uh, when you were talking about that, that, uh, that cave episode, I wonder if it's the one where they get Connie, Joseph and Bobby all get trapped in the boneyard. Cause that's the only time I can really think of, they were in a cave and I want to say something was written on the wall, but I just can't really remember. Um, and that might be every, that, that's, that sounds yeah, right. I, I think it's what's written on the wall is what the joke, yeah. what, what Dotree started riffing on. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because that I've ever since uh, and I've had I've had this talk so many times, ladies and gentlemen, I apologize for, for the guys that are listening and watching, um, you know, there's a comic book and you might have read it. It's a little a little bit over a decade old now. Uh, Jonathan Lehman. And I can't think of the other guy that co co-created it with him, but it's called Chew and it was from IDW. And it's about this detective, Detective Chew. And he's a chibopath, which means he can eat stuff and he solves crimes. And he's a detective. But the only thing that he can eat, I think it's beets. It's been a while since I've read it, but I think it's beets. The only thing that he can eat is beets without like getting sensory overload of like what happened. So the Chivo path, if he's eating a cheeseburger, for example, right? And say somebody cuts themselves while they're making his burger and the blood gets into the burger and he takes a bite of that. He knows that the chef that just created this burger killed somebody six states over. So he's got all of these flashes and these imageries. It's a very, very cool book. And like I said, it's about a decade old. It's called Chew. Um, and it was an IDW book. It's it's I've given this book so many recommendations. I feel like I should have stock options in it. Literally, anytime comics comes up, this is the one I'm throwing out because it was so fun. But this book made me look into the backgrounds because in that first scene, you've got two cops and and Tony Chu. He's the good guy. He's a nice guy. You know, his detective is that that brass American that you see the good cop, bad cop. He's that American cop, long blonde surfer hair. And uh, he's just a dick, right? He abuses his authority. He's a dick. He goes in this convenience store and he's shitting all over this like 16 year old, you know, store clerk when he's trying to get a soda and stuff like that. And you see the kid in the background and he's flicking off at a detective. And then that was like the first time, like I forced myself to look in the background of a comic book. Like I would always look, you know, glancing and stuff, but like I forced me to look. And then like every panel I would look and you would start seeing posters that would say something funny or street signs that weren't really street signs, but they were funny names. And that's what led to my love for backgrounds and animation. And I've talked so many times uh, the last couple of weeks when we were talking in the hill about backgrounds in these backgrounds. And these are absolutely stunning. The colors that they would choose. You, know, you were talking about the trees for the CGI that you guys had to cut out when you're going into the house. Um, just I loved the world building and King of the Hill as well. It was always so beautiful. Nighttime shots were always my favorite. Like those up. I don't even know what they're called, but like the you would see. Um, if you remember uh, Hank's cowboy movie directed by Sean Cashman, that was another guy I had on that was a phenomenal yeah. guest. Um, but they have this shot where they're they're coming in and they're showing Arlen's, but they're zooming out. So you're seeing the entire suburb and then you're seeing another suburb. You also see it in The Exterminator um, where Dale ends up losing, uh, you know, he can't exterminate anymore. So he has to go into the workforce. And the same thing, it zooms out and then you see cubicles. And it reminded, and I told Sean this, I was like, that shot reminded me of, an ant nest like you start zooming out zooming out zooming out and you see all these drones essentially of these people going from cubicle to cubicle sitting in front of a computer and that's all they're doing and the first thing i thought of was like ants and it was fitting because dale had a dead ant on his truck for the longest time but the backgrounds yeah. on king of the hill were absolutely stunning um so going back to that long-winded way of saying i think the i think the episode we were talking about was that boneyard one i think i remember seeing i'm going to go back and watch the episode as soon as we're done talking to see if that's what it was and if it is might i'll take been, a picture of it and i'll send it over to you um, might have been a troy aikman joke on the wall too 
on the it would be surprised yeah i wouldn't be surprised um so i figure man we've uh one second all right and we're back man we're talking king of the hill again with chuck now we'll go into the episodes in just a second but i would love to hear what you think about characters because I've talked to so many of you guys that have, have, like I said, written, they've drawn these characters, they've helped bring these characters to life in pre-production when it comes to any show, really. And I'm always fascinated upon what you guys latch on to. So not so much what's your favorite character in this series, but if you got one or two characters that you absolutely love, but the catch is it's not your favorite character, but what character was so comfortable or what character was so easy for you to slip into, to draw, to write for, to try to find the voice for, what were some of those characters that you absolutely had a joy in doing? Um, you know, I, I, I really loved them all there. They were, they were, when I actually had to start drawing them on model, some of them were harder to draw than others. Um, Bill's face is a very difficult face to draw, okay. but, um, because, uh, Mike, Mike was not, a uh, necessarily a classically trained artist. Mm-hmm. So the things that you learn yeah as basics when you're creating a character and this is something actually it's it's a, a leads into a brad bird story if you want me to tell you absolutely um, the, the the is you know you you have the the two eyes are right over the uh the corners of the the lips the inside of the eyes are on the inside of the nose there's basically all of these structural things that happen on a face to make it so that what you can you can kind of put down a guide and figure out where you're supposed to put everything on a face but mike uh mike not being classically trained he didn't and he was looking to create something else he was looking to create unique and distinctive characters he wasn't thinking about that when he put that stuff together so and there's you know there's also things like the length of an arm is the length uh the length of a forearm is the length of the uh the upper arm is the length of you know you you basically break these things down like you know how many heads high sections. how many, yeah. uh, in in sections and how you can compare everything to something else so that you can keep it all proportionate especially when you're starting to draw it from strange angles or uh from low angles high angles foreshortening whatever it is that you're doing but because they didn't follow any of those rules it was really sometimes hard to turn the head in space Mm -hmm. which is something that you want to do when you're drawing something fairly realistically you're 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 trying to make it look natural like it moves naturally in space and uh, so bill's head was was for me was very difficult to draw bobby's head was very very difficult to draw um uh, in fact at one point we didn't tell anybody but i built cg models of of all of hank and bobby and i think uh peggy um so that we could have something and i printed them out so that we could have something to turn to be able to make make those sort of unusually shaped heads turn in space the way that we wanted to. Some guys wouldn't use them, uh, but me and some of my friends did because it just made things a lot easier for us. Um, so, and that's actually how I wound up doing the uh, the head for um, uh, the Meryl Streep character in Beer Can Named Desire. So, the, so those guys were hard to draw, but eventually you kind of get used to it. You, you sort of figure out the shorthand that works. Um, and you just draw with the model sheets underneath all the time so that you're, you you stay consistent with what the actual proportions are as opposed to what the idealized proportions were. And Brad Bird was, you know, he was very aware that that was going to create a problem, not only for us, but for the overseas animators. So he was always talking to Greg about um, restructuring the characters so that they had those kinds of connections 
so that the eyes went the way they were supposed to. But Greg didn't want to do it because he felt like it took them too much in the Simpsons kind of direction. So, um, and, you know, Brad was a paid consultant and he was trying to do what he could to help the show as much as possible. So he would bring it up um, periodically. And at one point, Mark McJimsey pulled me aside and he said, I need you to talk to Brad and ask him to please stop asking Greg about this because Greg is never going to change his mind and he doesn't want to have to hear this question anymore. And so I went, but I don't really know Brad. <laughs> and Brad, at this point, he was, he was, fairly well known you know he mm -hmm. he but he was not he hadn't done the iron giant at that point i think he was actually working on it at that stage so um so he was not like he and he certainly hadn't done mission impossible so he was not the name that everybody knows yeah. now and i had to sort of pull him aside and i said because he started he pulled out his little sketches and he, he started to, to say greg here i want to talk to you about the character proportions and i pulled him aside and i said look greg doesn't want to hear about this anymore. And I understand what you're saying. I'm an artist. I get it. Um, I totally get it, but you can't, you just, you just have to basically stop and let him have the original Mike judge designs. And that's just what we're going to have to go with. He just doesn't want to be bothered with this anymore. And, and Brad looked at me a little surprised, but then he just kind of nodded. And he totally got it. And he said, okay, I understand. And he never, never mentioned it again. And he was great. And he and I, you know, we would, we were chatty and friendly whenever he was there. It never, it didn't never became an issue, but it was like probably one of the most awkward moments that I ever had, but it was for that reason. It was that the characters for traditionally trained animators were very, very difficult to draw. Um, they actually turned out to be easier for me to draw because I was a classically trained illustrator. So mm -hmm. I was used to drawing more human and more realistic poses. And they loved that. Like, you know, just naturalistic the way somebody would sit in a chair. Like I, I often had Hank leaning forward with his hands on his knees and uh or um like you know doing subtle things subtle kinds of hand gestures that they really liked and because i was able to pose them out um it they usually animated fairly well so um so that that worked for me but they were they were they were hard they were tough characters for most classically trained animators to have to draw i think paul had mentioned that bobby's head was in not impossible but it was so difficult to draw it took up so many time uh, it took up so much time and there was a couple other uh storyboard artists that said the same thing um they were saying that uh you know one oh, man i wish i could remember who it was um it might have been it was either i think it might have been glenn but he had talked about um that uh like once he figured out cotton i think is what he said uh he figured out bobby because bobby was bobby or cotton was an older version of bobby just shrunken yeah. down and everything so yeah. it was one of those things where once he figured out a one character it was like the other one became heads and or heads and shoulders easier to draw each time because of just flushing it out looking at it from a different angle a different perspective it might have been glenn if it wasn't glenn i apologize glenn um but uh yeah so with with these characters did how hard is it just obviously you got a script to play off of when you're directing an episode, but how hard is it? Like when you really have fun with a specific character or a specific moment, how hard is it to give each character their just desserts? If that makes sense. Well, like enough screen time, I guess is what I'm getting at. Oh, well that's more, I think that's more of a writing thing. Um, you know, that's not, we just do what we were given with the script when I was on the art side, um, on the, on the, on the writing side, they, they were always aware of the fact that there were going to be characters that might be breakouts. They thought Boomhauer might be a real breakout character and that 
Mm -hmm. Um, people would expect to see more of him in episodes because he would become so popular, but, um, and he was, he was quite popular with the, the executives, especially, uh, over at Fox. They really thought he was terrific. Um, but, um, you, you kind of, um, it's, and this is the this is one of the, the I, you know I was talking about earlier about Greg being very story focused and not wanting to you know to he that would always be kind of his north star as far as where he wanted to come back to, and I recognized that 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 was a lot of it was that was the genius of what he did is that mm-hmm. he kept the jokes story focused so the jokes were never tangential you know they were never they were they were always loving among the family. They were never insults. They were always, and they were always, there was always a joke that was driving the story forward in some way. He, and because of that, he taught me how to stay focused on the story, but he also taught me that there are times where there there's this fantastic scene that you may have with Bill dancing with a mop or whatever. Not that there ever was one, but I'm just using it as a, a fake example. Um, but it, it has nothing to do with, Peggy and her boggle, you know, match. So yeah. it winds up that winds up going on the cutting room floor, and so in some ways he actually helped me when I got to the boarding side because I would sometimes the scripts would come in really long, like they would come in. God, there were a couple that I got that were fifty pages. I mean, for a, which you know they should be around twenty seven or so for a half mm-hmm. an hour episode at the most. So you know you're going to have to board a lot of stuff that's going to get cut because sometimes the you know, Greg and the art, uh, the writers wanted to see how something was going to play before they made the decision about taking it out. And so we would, so there, I got actually pretty good at recognizing, okay, this is not on story the way Greg likes it. This is likely going to be a scene that gets cut. I don't have to work as hard on it. I'll keep the, mm-hmm. the backgrounds looser. I'll keep the, I'll make sure all the jokes land. Cause that's the thing that you want. You want to make sure that the scenes are funny. And sometimes that wound up hurting me because they wound up using those. And then I had to go back and really clean them up when I hadn't bothered with them before. But I got pretty good at actually figuring out what was going to wind up being edited out of this out of the show because I really, really took it to heart what Greg was saying about why thing why something is on story, why the the jokes are funnier, why the story engages more, why it holds the audience's attention more. Um, so and that's helped me all the way along. You know, it's helped me anytime I'm looking at animatic i can see this is extraneous we don't need this this line um is you know we've got it we've got to get another five seconds out of this thing let's take that that and that so it makes you it, it gives you a real focus for um staying on story and staying um, true with the characters um the characters that are a part of the specific story and and there was always going to be time for bill to have his moment to shine in some other episode and mm-hmm. once in a while, they would try to take those scenes that we had boarded and like pick them up and drop them into another episode, but it never really worked because they still weren't on story. And, you know, and so they were, ne- it, you know, it just never really worked unless they were going to write a story about Bill dancing with a mop. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, but there were moments that were, um, God, one of my favorite moments of all time is, is somebody makes a, oh, Bill be fine. Bill be great. And then you cut to Bill and he's closing the blinds. And then the blinds are closed, and you just hear him sigh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there are those cutaways that still work. Those are, and and King of the Hill was not really a cutaway show, but sometimes you could make it work. Sometimes you could get it to fit in. Um, so they, there are there are places sometimes where you could get it to go, but 
but Greg, I mean, it was, it was incredibly valuable and it would drive us, it'd drive us all crazy. I mean, I remember sitting with John Collier working, oh God, it must've been three in the morning on, um, the smoking episode, the Bobby smoking episode. That's a good one. And there was, we, there was an, after, I think it was after this first act break, Bobby is sitting in class and he's jonesing for a cigarette and we're, mm-hmm. Greg is trying to cut it together. And the director had done this really interesting thing where he had taken a bunch of, it was, it was just quick cuts of various scenes, the clock, Bobby sweating, his feet jiggling, somebody playing with a pencil. There was just, it just kept cutting from one moment to to a moment, to another, to another. And Greg was having a real hard time wrapping his head around the idea that this wasn't necessarily story related coming right off of a of a commercial to come right into something that was so surreal almost a little surreal and not quite so story focused and he he just he was struck he was really struggling with it and he couldn't make the decision how to cut it he kept moving scenes around he kept trying to maybe take a scene after that and put it ahead of it so that we came into some story before we got into the the sort of the unusual montage and I just remembered it was like three o'clock in the morning and it was John Collier's episode and he was there and, and he, I think he had a, a, a newborn or a young kid and he obviously wanted to be home with his wife and his child. And, and Greg was just like, it's, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's just not working. I don't know. And he was kind of like more muttering to himself with his head down. And I said, I don't know, Greg, I think it kind of works. It's very Jacques Tati. And um, Greg spun around and looked at me and he goes, and Jacques Tati is just huge in the United States, isn't he? And then he got up and walked out. And I went, oh, my God. And I looked at John Collier and I went, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just watched Jacques Tati yesterday and I just was stuck in my head. And John just like looked at me and he just shook his head and thought, I'm never seeing my family tonight. And he got up and walked out, too, because it, it was going to it could be because Greg would immediately go to whatever his other fire needed to be put out at two or three in the morning. And we might see him again that night. We might not. So we had to, we had to wait. We had to sit there until he decided what he was going to do. And um, so John couldn't go home. I couldn't go home. Leo Pape couldn't go home. The edit, the color editor. So, um, but that was an example of how he was so focused on that stuff that I learned from him. That's really important. I still think the guy's a freaking genius that he is. I I don't ever regret those three o'clock mistakes that I made. I'm sorry that I you know got John and Leo involved, in <laughs> but I learned. I just learned at every moment of the day that I was there. I was I was like a sponge absorbing the stuff that Greg was talking about or the other writers were talking about. Zuckerman was the same way. He was just that guy. Took he, he at one point. We were there. It was another time when we were in a recording session and, and they were, um, they were recording audio and one of the scripts had a line that wasn't playing. It was a, it was, it was Bobby shooting a gun. He was learning. We found it. Bobby's like a marksman. And I just watched this episode today. I just oh, watched did you? this episode. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, there's a, there's the scene where, um, after he's done all the shooting and Hank is really proud and he's asking him, wow, did you, did, you know, did you shoot any whatever? And, and, uh, and Peggy had a line after that, but he didn't like it. And they kept trying iteration after iteration after iteration. And, you know, David Zuckerman was there and he was going crazy because he was calling back to the writer's room saying, no, Greg doesn't like this one. Send another one. And I had it in, I for some reason it popped into my head. I, you are absolutely in my position. You are not supposed to do this. So I thought, 
oh, what if Peggy says, did you shoot any ducks? Like, you know, like any cute little ducks. And uh, it's whatever the line is that's in there. I actually wrote it on a post-it note. I gave it to my, uh, to the uh, PA, Dan, very nice guy. And I said, don't tell anybody where you got this because I could get in real trouble if they find out that, you know, the production coordinator is trying to slip Greg a line. So he went in and he gave it to David Zuckerman. Zuckerman laughed, handed it to Greg. Greg liked it. It wound up in the show. And then Zuckerman came out to me afterwards and he said, you know, you saved us. And I said, no, I just, it just popped into my head. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done it. And he said, no, 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 that was, that was really helpful. I appreciate you doing it. And I said, okay, well, don't tell anybody who did it. Cause it's like, you know, that's, I'm crossing a huge line there. There's union rules and all kinds of other stuff that you're breaking by doing stuff like that. So, um, and it's like the only time that I ever did anything like that. It was just like, everybody was so frustrated and I could just see the frustration on Dave's face. So he said, if you've ever got anything you, you want me to read, bring it in and I'll read it. And so um, at one, I had written this spec screenplay that I had just done for fun at one point. And I said, well, do me a favor, just read it and tell me if you think I have the ability to actually write professionally. And he took the script away and he went, he said, well, I'm going on vacation. I probably won't read it until I get back. And I said, okay, that's, that's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, when you have the time. And I thought, He'll never read it. <laughs> you know, yeah. as much as everybody tries to pay it forward, they just don't have the time. He came back and he had read it on his vacation and he came in and was, he was like, this is really good. He had a couple of problems with some of the scenes and he had a lot of notes, but he went through it and he said, this is actually a really, really good script. You have talent. And, and I will never forget David doing that. I mean, those are the kinds of things that would just sort of happen and they would happen because I was working there and because I was putting in long hours and because I was trying to be helpful. And, um, and people, you know, they, they remember those days when they were struggling and they wanted somebody to take notice of them. And, and so I, I, I love David. I love John Collier. John Collier was the same way. Really, really supportive. I, even though I totally ruined his night that night. Um, uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul Lieberstein was fantastic. I love Paul Lieberstein. He was really, he was so funny and so charming. And I love hanging out with him and talking. Um, so, you know, I, I, I will forever remember the very, very hard work, but I will also forever remember, um, the, the moments of working on those shows. So, so I have a different, so that's a very long way of getting around, I think back to where you were asking, but it's about, it's about, I, I don't have a specific favorite character because, because I loved Johnny. I loved Stephen Root, uh, uh, Kathy Najimi, uh, Toby Huss. Toby Huss is the only one that I ever had any weirdness with. And Johnny actually kind of got me out of it. It was funny because Toby, uh, you, we would come in for the record days and it was, it was all night because you had to wait until the script was finished. And then you had to make sure that it got delivered to all of the actors and uh, all of the writers that night so that they would have it to read before they came in for the table read. So you'd send out the, the white to that night. Then you had to be back first thing in the morning to start preparing the blue for the table read. And that meant you'd have to get all of those scripts printed up and ready to go. And then you had all have reams of the other colored papers that came after that yellow, pink, goldenrod. I don't remember what all the colors are anymore, but, um, but for every revision, you have a different color so that you know at what stage each of those pages are when they come back with a rewrite on them. 
hopefully you get through a, a table read and it's all blues and you can just start recording everything. But most of the time there are going to be revisions. There are jokes that just don't play at the table read. Sometimes an actor will have a problem with them. So your day, the day that, that day, the record day is a really, really, really long day. And you are on, you are in that record bay from dawn until often way late at night because you have to then get the the audio stuff together um, and then it's even longer for the the pas because the pas have to then take all that stuff and deliver it where it needs to go so the audio would have to be um, labeled and prepared and and set up to go out to the um uh, the audio editor who was down at sony and uh that was always a you know a tough drive late at night so um so sometimes I would bring in just like any kind of a snack that would get me through the day. I had some allergies, mm -hmm. so I couldn't eat the sandwiches or whatever that they would bring in. So I remember bringing in this almond butter that I was just sort mm -hmm. of nauseous on through the course of the day. And Toby Huss was like, dude, that's, that's Maranatha almond butter. And I said, yeah, just, I, yeah, I got it at Whole Foods. It tastes really great. He goes, they're a cult. And I went, what, what do you mean? They're, a, they're what? He said, yeah, they're a cult, man. They are a cult are you actually funding a cult? And I was like, dude, no, I just, I needed something to eat during the day and I'm allergic to peanuts. So I got almond butter and he said, he said, they're a cult. You're funding a cult. And finally Johnny came in and he was like, you know what, Toby, he's laid a let up on the guy. He, he won't buy the almond butter anymore. <laughs> so, so Johnny kind of extricated me from that moment, but, <laughs> but that was like my, I remember that was my one sort of weird moment otherwise it was like i got along with everybody i got along i actually most of the time got along great with toby um i got along oh, pam was just sensational so i love bobby i love you know whatever other characters that she did mike judge was just pure pleasure to work with and he had all these crazy voices and it's funny because you talk about the background characters but i i remember sometimes those background characters were just background characters and then they needed a character like Dooley went from being a background character mm -hmm. design to we need a kid to say a line here and you know because mike had a deal where he could record any voice that they needed as part of his overall deal um they always came to him to come up with some and he was a, he was a human mime he was a human or not mime uh minor bird he was a, like a mocking he could imitate anybody he could yeah. imitate people imitating him doing hank hill which actually became a sort of a <laughs> weird problem at one point so that's he, a multiverse right there it was a weird kind of multiverse because there were times where you would hear he, he would like we would get people to dub uh, sub a, a Hank Hill voice just to get the timing down and then send it to him and he would send it back and it would sound like a bad version of whatever temp voice we had sent him because he heard that and it had influenced the way he had read his own Hank Hill lines. So we actually had to wind up re-recording some of them. Um, so anyway, that's a, another sort of crazy tangent. But but he I remembered him. Uh, he had to come up with a voice for Dooley and he goes what if this is the kid whose voice changed early and he just mm -hmm. reads it in this like really deep baritone and everybody howled and the, and they went back and forth for about a while a little while about it but they thought let's go with it let's let's do the that's Dooley's voice so um so just, I you would be there and you would see those things come alive and I think man I love that Dooley character or I'd see Pam do a voice and I go god I love I love and Pam was always one of my favorite people she was another people who would come to my defense and and protect me from people who were being mean to me <laughs> so i love pam Pam was fantastic um uh who else uh britney was just wonderful just so yeah. sweet and her mom was a doll her mom was just an absolute doll um um 
but Steve was one of my favorite human beings on the planet. Um, so, so I, I, I love them all. I don't have, I, I mean, I, it, you'd have a better time asking me and Victor Aaron, I got, I love that guy. He was, um, such a sweetheart human being and his daughter was so wonderful. He was such a good dad. Um, but, um, then I, I, you know, the guy who replaced him was a good friend of his. He, he loved Victor. He felt terrible that he wound up getting the job because of what happened to Victor. Um, but he was super sweet, uh, such a sweetheart. And I loved him too. So John Redcorn was a favorite character. Jonathan Jose. Yeah. I'm sorry. Jonathan Jose. I actually had Jonathan. him on. Yeah. I John. actually had him on, um, probably the first year of doing this podcast. I reached out. I, I was during COVID when I started this. And I had reached out to him and he was like, yeah, I'll come on the show. And we recorded and then my laptop ended up, my first laptop ended up getting stolen. So I have like oh, five, six man. episodes maybe of uh, episodes I'll never really be able to release because, <laughs> listen, if you're out there and you've got my laptop, you don't have to give it back. Just give me those fucking episodes, man. That's all I need. Those five, six episodes <laughs> that I got out. You keep the rest of the shit. Just give me those oh, five or six episodes man. back. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it is what it is, man. I, most of the time, I'll reach back out if something happens. Like if the audio gets messed up, the video gets messed up, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll probably wait a little while and say, hey, you want to come back on? We won't have to talk about the same shit, but we can talk about something else, you know. Uh, but it, it happens. Yeah, it was it because uh, he had I, I believe he had told the story about how because I'd asked him, you know, I know that, you know, Victor had passed away. Like, but how did, you know, it come about? And I think he was saying um, something to the effect that, like, maybe it was Victor that was doing um walker texas ranger or he was on the set of walker texas ranger because he ended up um doing parks and recs jonathan did um and then that's where i knew him from as well as john redcorn and he had he had told the whole story you know about uh you know victor passing away and then him getting the job and then um he went into just hearing just closing my eyes because it was all over phone so just closing my eyes and listening to john redcorn talk to me was one yeah. of the most surreal experiences. Like I've had quite a few voice actors on here. Um, yeah. I've had, you know, like Billy West, like everybody knows who Billy West is. That's Fry from Futurama and Doug Funny. I've had Rob yeah. Paulson, my my favorite voice actor of all time, Rob Paulson. Um, you know, so I've had all of these guys and gals on here and then just closing my eyes and listening to them slip into a voice that they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I've had people on here that, you know, started in the eighties and the seventies and the sixties, you know, that did voices. So it's just like, just closing my eyes and listening and then having that person talk to you. And it's one of the most surreal moments, especially when it was somebody like John Redcorn, you know, like said, Jonathan talking yeah. to me. And then he goes into, Oh fuck, man, I'm going to, I can't remember the name. as a big mountain fudge cake. Was that the name of the, was that the name of the band that they did? I, I think that was the name of the band I did, but they, he started singing. I've got a hole in my pocket where the money should be. So it was the song <laughs> that John Redcorn's band sung with Lucky and everybody else. Oh, Octavio, man. I think, was a part of that. And I was like, this is so cool. I go to release it. This laptop gets stolen. I can't release it. I'm like, no, that was oh, one of my favorite moments man. was just him him singing that. Yeah, like I said, it happens. Um, yeah. I didn't mean to derail. I didn't mean to derail you there when you're talking about uh, the, the characters, man. But uh um with with those with those um those sessions where you've got those table reads uh is there like one table read maybe one line that sticks out to you most that maybe had you laughing so hard you you might have peed a little bit or you're crying you couldn't catch your breath is there anything that sticks out as far as the funniest table read um you know they were all really really funny i i um 
it's like you, especially that first season. It's why I loved working on the show so much. I, and it's why I respect Greg and, and the team of writers that he assembled so much because uh, there was just not, there wasn't as a, a, a doornail in any of them. I mean, they were all fantastic. They were, mm-hmm. they were, they were all funny. They all had big laughs. Um, I guess the one that I remember, the, I remember this one, but it was, it was not, I don't think I, I would think I was over at film Roman at this point, but I had gone back for the table read because it was one of Chris's episodes and it was Bobby slam. And it was the only time. And I, I, I could be wrong about this, but it was the only time I remember that an entire blue went through mm-hmm. an entire table read went through. It just got laugh after laugh after laugh. And it, when Chris got a hold of it, Chris was just one of the best comedy guys comedy storyboard guys in the business um it just got funnier visually and it it, to the point where it was to me it was just an absolutely hilarious episode so um so i remember that one specifically because it was such a rare event for a a blue to go through and you know i'm sure that greg did pickups or you know rereads or or what have you later on but um but i but i remember that one specifically it got a, a it got huge laughs at the table, but that yeah. was not uncommon. I mean, you know, there were always huge laughs. Uh, Greg used to sort of tease that you can't always go by the, 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 the table read because the writers are selling it so that they don't have to go back and do any extra work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're all laughing at their own jokes. Um, on, you know, uh, so, so he, and so he was always the arbiter. He was always the judge. If he felt like the laughs were really genuinely sincere, he, he would leave it alone. And again, oftentimes he would change it because he didn't feel like the joke was specifically on story enough. So yeah. he wanted to kind of re- rethink it that way. Um, so I guess that's the one I remember the most for that mm-hmm. was Bobby Slam. Um, was that the wrestling one? Yeah. That's the yeah, that's the wrestling one. Yeah, yeah. where Bobby okay. joins the wrestling team. Yeah, yeah, that's a. <laughs> I, I there's there's two scenes in particular I think about one when you talk about the uh, smoking episode earlier. That scene where it's nighttime, they're already hooked on smoking. And then I think Hank, it's either Hank or Peggy, they're smoking outside of the window. And then it does an up view. And then it's like almost like a mosquito view, right? So it goes yeah. up above the house over and it comes right back down. You see Bobby sitting against the the wall and he's smoking a cigarette. That is such a beautiful shot. And I don't know what it is about that shot. I just think it's very cool that it it broke the plane, essentially. Like, it's not linear. It went up and over. It was like, it made it seem like the two-dimensional went three-dimensional for just a little bit. It was just very cool. And I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that before when I saw that the first time. And yeah. uh, the, the Bobby slam <laughs> was when they're training Bobby. And they let him or they have him laying in the middle of the, the, the yard and they put a wet rug over him and they're just hosing the rug down. They're like, all right, now explode. <laughs> explode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Explode. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just those those two. Have, like I said, it's so it's so disgusting. Like what I can remember, like I can't remember shit about algebra, geometry, astronomy, chemistry. But I can tell you all these cool, anything that I find fascinating, comic books, cartoons, what have you, man. I can tell you these cool little things that won't get you any brownie points with anybody. But it's like uh, these are core memories uh, growing up and watching this. And even watching it now as a kid or watching it now as an adult, man. Um, with those table awesome. reads, with those table reads going into into another uh, into another one of these episodes that you worked on, man. Um, 
plastic white female. I find this one yeah. so fun, right? Because I think we can all, like I said, when you can put any kind of emotional baggage into a show or into a character, I make it, I think it makes it feel like it's that more personal. It's that yeah. more easy. It's, it's ascertainable. Like you can understand, you know, the, the character's motives and its drives. Right. So obviously we've all been that awkward, you know, teenager, preteen, possibly, you know, get invited to our first dance. You know, it's it's boys, girls dance. So, you know, it, uh, if you're a girl, you're going to go with a guy or a guy go with a girl or, you know, back in the day, it was guy, guy, girl, girl. It didn't really matter, man. Um, but it was like uh, that first time where you're starting to become more than like a kid. You're starting to shed all of that innocence in a sense. Right. And yeah. then you're you're starting to look at the opposite sex differently. And that's what Bobby was going through. And he was like, man, I, when did I, when was I supposed to start feeling this stuff? Right. It, it always felt like Bobby was behind everybody. Um, and it's, he felt uncomfortable. And I, I think we can all say that we felt uncomfortable the first time we started having any kind of feelings for anybody. Right. And you guys played this one so masterfully, right. Him making out with the fucking, with the, with the, the, the plastic head Luann, there's two lines or there's one scene, one line in here in particular in this entire in this entire episode that I have thought about more and more as the time has went on. It's the scene after Luann. Spoiler, if you haven't seen this episode, ladies and gentlemen, it's your fault, not mine. It's a 25-year-old episode. Go back and watch this one. It's in the first season. Um, but it's when it's after when Hank cuts the head in half because he's pissed off that Bobby broke into the into the cupboard to get the head out after he had already put it up. And he cuts it in half. And then he has to be Luann's test subject, right? Yeah. And then the teacher comes over. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember this teacher's name, the professor. But she goes in circles, X's on Frank, uh, on Hank's head, and then just cuts down Luann. And then you see Hank go, what a bitch, as she walks yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. Like that scene in particular, I, I absolutely love. And then uh, like that piece of dialogue, that scene. And then when... After they find Bobby, you know, kissing, they walk down the hallway. They're like, hey, it's us, your parents, and we're knocking on your door. And he's yeah. like, yeah, go ahead and come in. He's like, all right, well, we're coming in. We're turning the doorknob and then flash <laughs> forwards to uh, him trying to call Ladybird over. And he's going, Ladybird. And his mom walks by and he's like that weird, awkward, like, I'm not trying to kiss the dog to make out with the dog. I'm just trying to get the dog to come over. It's this scene, this, this episode. I hadn't seen this one in quite some time. Uh, it's probably been like last year, two years ago is when the last time I saw this episode. Uh, but going back and rewatching this, the rewatchability on these shows is phenomenal, second to none. But this one in particular, I laughed out loud so much during this one. Uh, what do you remember? You remember any cool, fun stories by working on this one? Plastic white female? Um, nothing yeah. specific. I mean, I just remember that, you know, like the the this back and forth screen killed mm -hmm. us all you know when 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 it tank walks in right and, and catches him kissing the head yeah. and and they just keep screaming scream peggy yeah peggy yeah scream 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 and it just kept getting funnier and funnier every time they cut back and forth so um uh i think i don't i it's it's there were you know this was like you said it's a long time ago it's hard for me to remember specifics about that one um and you know a, a lot of this stuff. I mean, if that was first season, I think that was first season. Yeah, that was I think first that was season. Gen was Jennifer Coolidge that did that? Was it Jennifer Coolidge that did the voice for that? I think she was the teacher, Luann's teacher. Yeah, the professor. Um, a professor, yeah. So, um, 
uh, for me, I didn't have anything specific to do with the episode. I was, that was where, and I was, you know, getting scripts to people, making sure that the, the actors got to their record sessions. You know, so I, I did not actually have anything to do with the specific episode. And the reason that I was in the edit bay was so that I could take notes in case something was needed, a, a line of dialogue needed to be picked up that Greg, while, while Greg was editing or, I would sit with the editor. It was just a lot of technical and logistical stuff. So I remember watching this stuff and being as entertained as anybody else while it was going on. I remember watching all of the cuts uh, and I probably remember scenes that aren't even in the shows anymore because the, for my most of my memories have to do with the animatics as they were being cut yes. together to be shipped overseas. So um, uh, in fact, I, 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 the, I think I only went through the first 13. It's one of the reasons why I couldn't remember Jonathan's name is I only worked with him a couple of times before I wound up leaving and going over to the, to the animation side. So, so yeah, I didn't have, I, I don't, I don't remember specifics about working on, especially the first season episodes so much as, um, as a lot of other people. Cause I was, I was a fan just like anybody else. I just happened to be there while they were working on it, which was even cooler. Yeah, I got to imagine. Uh, it, it's like I said, the the rewatchability on this. I don't know when the last time you probably popped an episode in, but they've got it all on Hulu now. So if you got Hulu, you can watch oh, them all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It, it's made it easy because I think I think even now they only have the first six seasons out on DVD. I, I mean, I took the DVDs with me um, when I would deploy. I, I would have two binders. I don't know if you remember the DVD oh, binders yeah, about yeah, that thick. Yeah. And then I I've actually got them still in my my movie room. Uh, you know, downstairs. Um, or across the hallway. Um, but it's like my, I would take my sea bag with me and I would have, you know, just all of my, all of my clothes, you know, my uniforms, my, my workout stuff. And then I would always have a dress bag as well. That was all my dress uniforms. And then I would always try, like, I literally looked like I was like, I was carrying stuff for like four or five people. Cause I would have a backpack that had all of my books and then my wife would send me my uh comic books once a month uh she would just save them all send them out to me i would get care package i survived on mac and cheese and tuna fish because being on aircraft carriers the food goes by so quick like it people start hoarding food you know it, it's just it's impossible and all you're doing is working out to burn time anyways you work 12 on 12 off if you're lucky most of the time when i was in supply i was working 14 on you know maybe 16 on because you can only you can only do so much running when you're deployed. You can only do so much working out when you're deployed. You just want to be around people because you're you're feeling isolated. You're feeling alone. And uh, I would, like I said, I would bring every movie and cartoon show that I ever loved. And then that was the thing like my wife and I would do. We would go on. We would go when FYE was like the big thing. We would go and buy DVDs. We'd buy box sets. And we'd watch stuff together. And I would take all of that with me when I would leave because I needed something to do. And she didn't really like watching TV without me. You know, she's just one of those people who's like, uh, it's kind of boring. I don't really want to watch it without him, you know, type of thing. So I would do it to keep myself entertained. And King of the Hill, the only first six seasons were out there, man. So I watched these these first six seasons so many times deployed. Um, wow. So it, it's it's pretty it's pretty locked in here. Like I said, all those little all those little factors, all those little lines, all those little Bobbyisms or whatever characterisms is out there, man. They're, they're stuck up in here for 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 good. And that's a good thing, man, because like I said, you guys gave me so much joy for this one. You know, um, I, I like to ask these questions, you know, towards the end of these podcasts, because I, I think it's fitting. And I, I think, like I said, it's it's um, it's a cool way to to really encapsulate your time. Now, if you could think about uh, maybe one or two episodes, and I want you to think about episodes that you didn't work on, you didn't direct. I know it might probably be a little bit difficult, but um, I, I think it's fun. If you were to give, well, let's take one of your episodes and maybe one of the friends episodes that they worked on. 
if you were to take uh, one episode of yours and one episode of your friends, and then the the objective was to give them to somebody that's never heard of King of the Hill, and you knew they would get hooked off of one of these episodes, what one of your episodes that you worked on would you give them? And what one episode of your friends would you give them? And you know that this person would get hooked on King of the Hill. Wow, that's a it's a it's quite a question. Um, I mean, there were so many episodes that I that I loved that were so well done. Um, I think I think some of my favorite episodes were done by um, uh, I mean, Alan did some great stuff, um, but probably the one that stands out the most for me was one that just really touched my heart. Um, was by um, Buwan and Kyung Hee. They did the one where. Bobby turns out to be the reincarnation of the Buddha or the Dalai yeah. Lama, whatever. Yeah. So, um, and that ending where he sees Connie's reflection in the mirror mm-hmm. was just so magical. Beautiful. Yes. And th- they were fantastic storytellers and they worked their asses off on those shows. And they just did such a stupendous job of conveying all of the power of that, that scene in that moment. Um, that that's a, that's a, a huge favorite of mine. Won't you pee um, my neighbor is the name of that episode. Alan brought that uh, one up. Yeah. Uh, okay. Alan yeah. put that one up too? Yeah, yeah. Alan Alan picked that one because, I, like I said, I always ask you guys what are some of your favorite episodes. And that was – I believe it was Alan. I'd have to go back and check. Like I said, some of the, the uh, chats that I have kind of blend into one another. I can't remember if yeah. it was Paul that talked, but I'm pretty sure that was Alan. It was Won't You Pee My Neighbor is the name of that episode. Okay, yeah. Well, Alan and I have similar tastes, so that makes sense to me. But, but you know, Buwan and Kim, he were – just amazingly talented too so um uh i worked on one that i thought was particularly funny and really out there it was uh, peggy learning to to skydive uh when she broke her her back yeah yeah um uh that one i think it resonated with a lot of people who were kind of going through a midlife crisis period in Mm -hmm. their lives you know so uh maybe i'd pick that one um just there are so many and i worked on God, I worked on so many and in just in and sometimes just pieces of them, you know, or I would help out with a storyboard or um I guess I might pick that one. Um uh, trying to think. Stay, they're all blending together now. It's been such a long time. As soon as we get off this call, you're gonna have four or five of us. You're like, damn it, I wish I would have said that. It always yeah. happens, man. Yeah, yeah, it will. Um, but yeah, I I I stopped watching the show. I haven't watched the show in good 15 years at least my son would probably like it oh absolutely i think my son would enjoy it a lot yeah Uh, he's got a really how how old is he he's 19 he's in college now oh he's gonna love this one i think it'll go right up his alley well he's i mean he he and i talk about he he wants to be a writer so we talk about the things that greg taught me about all the time so greg and and i have to give the, the other writers a lot of credit too david uh, John Collier, all of those guys, they, they were always very generous with, with their information. Um, but all of the stuff that I learned working there, uh, I, I still use in whatever writing I'm doing today, cause I'm doing, you know, I'm still doing comics. I do edge world for comiXology and, and I'm doing, uh, I'm doing another series for them that hasn't come out yet. And, um, so all all the stuff that I learned still gets applied, and so he and I talk about it all the time. So yes, I think he would I think he would love them, particularly some of the earlier Greg episodes. Greg was just, I mean, the guy is just a genius. I, I really I I've always felt that way. I will always feel that way. I will be forever grateful for the opportunity that I had to work with him and to learn from him. 
So, um, so I, you know, I, there's like, there's no episode that I can think of that I wouldn't pick. Um, you know, I guess if, if it was going to be any one, I might go back to those first, some of those first season episodes, um, the sex education episode. So um, good. Where she's yelling vagina. Um, <laughs> vagina. <laughs> yeah. And Hank is squirming. It was so great. Um, and Dale, Dale too. You don't know me, but I know where you live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, hi, Dale. <laughs> oh, hi, Dale. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Great stuff. Um, oh, it really is, man. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there, there are several in there that I would, I'd pick, uh, order the straight arrow. I love Cheryl holiday. I don't even know if I've mentioned her. She was so sweet and fantastic. And she was always um, trying to fix me up with a friend of hers. <laughs> so um she's she was a she was just a lovely person and and such a funny writer such a funny human being um so yeah i mean yeah they're just th- th- that whole first season just holds a real warm spot in my heart yeah that pilot is one of the most perfect pilots i've ever seen and i'm i'm, a cl- I'm completely biased when it comes to this show um but west, i truly mean that what's archer he's another genius man that guy's just brilliant Dude, and it's so glad I'm so glad you bring up Wes because like this is like the stage where I, well, I start asking you those questions about those people that I, uh, you know, I mentioned before we hit record. Um, and what better because we've, we've heard quite a bit about Greg. Um, so uh, I feel like we've 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 hit Greg um, a little bit here. So I won't ask you any fun stories about him because, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this episode, you're going to learn so much just from the the points that a lot of the writers that you were picking up that you were talking about, you know, not not doing the twinning thing, you know, making sure it hits on every point. You want to end it on the punchline. So you have time to laugh. You don't want to lose that laugh in between trying to explain something else. There is a lot of knowledge here, ladies and gentlemen, that you'd, you'd have to read books. You'd have to get in the industry to really understand or work for somebody like Greg or work somebody like Jim, you know, Cheryl, you'd have to work for all of these people to really gain this knowledge. So I hope you guys are taking notes out there. Um, but Wes, man, uh, I, I, don't think I might be wrong. I don't think this guy has talked about enough. Um, he is one of those guys and he doesn't have too many interviews out there. And the ones that I've seen are generally like the DVD, you know, the after after the show comes out and they've got those bonus features or those directed DVD type of things where he's talking about, you know, a shot. So he doesn't do very many or in, very many interviews. But I, I from what you can see of him, the dude is until I think he might be an alien. Like you listen to him talk and it's the same thing with Greg. Like you listen to these guys talk. And you listen the way they look at things and how they interpret it and then how they give it back to you or how they break it down and then they build it up. The layers that are in between everything that they do from the art to the writing to everything encompassing the show. I find it second to none. Like like I said, pretty sure these two guys are aliens, man. So working with Wes, what is that like? Do you have any fond memories or anything that you might have learned that you still use in your everyday like you do with Greg but with Wes? Um. I have, I mean, there, there are, I didn't work directly with Wes a lot, um, Mm -hmm. but you know, we knew each other and and he respected me. He, a lot of people knew me before I came over because they had seen me in animatics and and stuff. And I was uh, always there. Um, And then when they, when Wes saw that I could draw, he was another one of those that was saying, you should come over and work for us. So him and Mike Wolf. Um, But he, he, uh, part of it was that it's a sort of the tech, Texas connection. And that's also, you know, why Greg wanted Johnny Hardwick. They spent a lot of time in Texas 
going to uh, comedy clubs and going to events and and taking boating rides and fishing trips and stuff to find you know to really experience the the things that they were going to write about the everyday man things that they were going to write about they went to a propane store they talked to a propane mm-hmm. manager they did all that stuff all the writers went on these sort of junkets and and Wes he and his brother Martin uh, Martin also worked on the show he was work he worked on a, a couple of the first season episodes he they they grew up in this hard scrabble life and and did these amazing short projects that had really influenced mike judge in fact mike judge credits wes for helping him to invent beavis and butthead or as mike used to say it because you know i um uh he said i shamelessly lifted my ideas from wes archer so um but wes had this he had this it's like you said there were layers to everything the way he he saw things and thought things you know so he was he was one of the ones that we would talk to all the time about okay these characters don't work as what you would consider to be traditionally built characters how do you make them work in a scene and he would break down how you do that and how you hit the reality of it while at the same time maintaining a level of artistry of uh like setting up things like the the just the alley scene where the guys would mm-hmm. stand with the the slat fence behind them as they were talking um he would uh he would break down you know where the window would be so that it doesn't distract from the foreground and you know how how um this character is going to talk and how this character is going to gesture and how those things uh um express their personalities their individual personalities by the way that they stand by the way that they hold their 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 posture by the way their eyes look um so he was he was really instrumental in helping to sort of break down that overall look and feel. And when he directed that first episode, uh, same kind of thing. You know, he was trying to make because in a sense you're doing that first episode as a template for everyone else to kind of follow after. So he was doing everything that he could while working with Mike Judge to break down how um, how the episodes were supposed to look and feel. You know, for forever uh, that. Um, that sort of naturalistic acting that we talked about. And it wasn't even just uh, just the twinning thing that I talked about. It was, you know, they they sit with their thumbs in their belt loops or hands in their mm-hmm. pockets. Or, or you or you in, in actually, I think he said, don't ever put their hands in their pockets because that's considered um, unmanly to have your uh, your hands in a you know a position of weakness, basically. So yeah. so there was there was all of those kinds of things that he would break down. And he would also talk about how things worked in Texas and how, um you know uh how you how people respond and how they react it's like the you know the 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 um the emotional availability of the characters as much as you want emotional availability in a scene the emotional availability of the characters is going to be different in a sort of a much more hyper masculinized environment like um like sort of texas blue collar so mm-hmm. west was really careful to to help everybody sort of stay focused on that and not to get to have Hank, you know, like over gesturing or or getting too uh, emotional or physical things happen, yeah. you always want to kind of bring it back, and you always want to keep it in the in the eyes and in the eyebrows for the most part, not like in the in the big gesture. Oops, I'm sorry, Kitty. Not all of the big gestures and all of the the um, no no crazy wide legged stances, no anything like that. Um, so. So he kept everybody focused on that stuff and he laid it out beautifully in that pilot episode. So we had a template to go by. Um, the hard part was getting people who could draw, who could draw mm-hmm. those characters in that way and still convey what it is that Wes wanted everybody to convey. 
Um, but they trusted him to to do it completely. And um, you know, Wes is a he's you know he's just a really really smart, really really focused kind of guy. Um, and he was one of those guys. And it's funny because I I known him I'd known him quite a while. He's one of those guys that was so so focused on the art that sometimes you got the feeling like he was no longer in the room with you. He yeah. was kind of visualizing and imagining and, and it, your conversation was entirely secondary to whatever movie was playing in his head as he was getting through stuff. But when he years later, when he got married and had kids, he started to become much more sort of grounded and focused, mm -hmm. like, you know, you, how you kind of have to be because you, now yeah. you got to, now you got to, you're responsible for the life of another human being. And at one point he came in, he was always this jeans and wild t-shirt kind of guy. And then he, I, I'll never forget when he came in, I think it was, I don't know, like 10th season maybe. And he was, um, uh, he was wearing dockers and and I said, dude, you look like such a suburban dad. And I, I thought he was going to freak out. He was just so, no, I, I don't. I don't look like it. No, do I? Do I look like a suburban dad? <laughs> it, was like, it was this sort of like sudden realization that he had slowly morphed over into becoming Evil. like a responsible adult and parent yeah. and, you know, <laughs> and a loving husband and all of those things. And um, you know, that the focus had kind of changed and shifted in his life the way it needed to, you know, if you're going to live a life outside of the job and uh you know it was sort of funny i mean he's he's a great guy he was terrific to work with really open to to new and innovative ideas always liked to try something i mean he and john rice you talked about all that stuff for that the smoking episode like that you know over the house shot can we do this can we pull it off and west would figure help them help him figure out a way to make it work and so so he was he was innovative he was interesting I talk about him like he's he's passed. He hasn't. He's still alive. He's great. As far as I know, he's working on the new season that they're yeah. getting ready to produce. So um great guy. I like Wes a lot. Martin too. Yeah. I always got along really well with his brother Martin. In fact, one yeah. of some of my funniest memories are him and Chris and I in a small room, uh, boarding and working and just laughing our asses off just because Chris was just like out of his mind, hysterically funny. And yeah. Martin and I just loved like being in there <laughs> laughing while we worked so that's really cool memories to have too man because it's uh I, as i've learned as i've gotten older I, I used to think that if you made a lot of money you'd be happy you know it doesn't matter what the job was if the job paid a lot uh you could get through a lot of stuff and then it took me a couple years took me the military years to really learn that uh it's not about how much money you make it's cool to make money enough money to survive but it really all depends on who you're working with because you could make a just a shit ton of money, right? Yeah. And then yeah. work with the worst people in the world and it is miserable. There's not enough money in the world to make up for that misery. And then you go and you yeah. work for money that's, and I'm not advocating to get paid less, ladies and gentlemen. So the people that I work for, please don't pay me less. I love working with you guys, but it's like, I, I would much rather work with people that I absolutely love working with. That is a joy to work with and maybe make a little bit less money than make all the money in the world and work with just miserable, hateful people. It's, it's, it just kills you. It crushes your soul. Um, it crushes you mentally, physically, and emotionally on a day-to-day -day basis. So all for working with great people that make you laugh. Cause that's what life's supposed to be. You're supposed to have a lot of laughter in life. Um, and then I figure, uh, we could end it with uh, this gentleman. He's no longer here. Um, you know, I've had so much fun uh, just hearing stories about him because when I started and I, and I said I wanted to do a King of the Hill retrospective, I was I was thinking about doing this last year. 
um, because I've wanted to do a deep dive. Uh, first year I did this podcast, I did a deep dive into a animation studio called AKA Cartoons. They're out of Vancouver. They were run by Danny Antonucci. Danny and Mike ran in the same circles when they were both over there at MTV. Um, Ed, Ed, Danny Eddie, went, yeah. Yep, yep. He went over and created Ed, Ed and Eddie. And uh, I had almost their entire studio from every board artist to every writer to a couple of the producers that were on the show to almost every voice actor with the exception of a couple. Um, you know, so I'm doing the same thing now with uh, King of the Hill. Anybody and everybody that I can talk to, I'm talking to. Um, and sadly, Ian, Ian didn't, you know, Ian passed away last year. And it was like right around the same time where I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And then life kind of hit me in the nuts. And I had to like restructure everything. I had to take a little bit of a break off from the podcast and a couple people that I had, I had not lined up that I'd talked to, but I was going to reach out to it ended up passing away. And Ian was one of those guys. I saw him in the first season. I think it was, uh, it was probably the behind the scenes type of thing that did like a little documentary, like a little 10, 15 minute documentary on the making of King of the Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go and see it on YouTube as well. You just type in king of the hill season one behind the scenes type of thing you'll see uh you'll see a whole bunch of people and, and uh that was where i saw ian for the first time um when i was doing a whole bunch of research for the show and it was just like the way he was talking like he just looked like he had so much fun and so much life and then everybody i reached out to and got on the show to talk king of the hill they always had an ian story um so this is one of those guys that i loved hearing stories about man so you got a fun interaction with ian or whenever you think of ian is there a, is there a story that comes to mind or a, a memory that comes to mind oh there's lots of them i mean I, he uh, he was a really good friend he would come over to uh, my house uh, and hang out with my wife and my son when he was really little for thanksgiving or for christmas because he was you know he was a, he was from his family was from out of town so he would be one of those kind of orphans during the holidays and so yeah. Um, he, uh, in fact, I'll never forget, we had invited him over for a Thanksgiving dinner, uh, and, um, and he hadn't, he hadn't actually accepted. He had said, he said, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. And then the doorbell rang and we didn't think anybody was coming. So we were just like sort of nonchalantly going about our Thanksgiving day and I opened the door and there's Ian with a bottle of wine and wearing a suit. And, uh, I was like, dude, you didn't. RSVP. And he said, Oh, I thought it was just like an open invitation and there's going to be a lot of people here. And I said, no, there's you. <laughs> so, but he came in and he was funny and sweet. And I mean, he's just, he is, he was just a warm and gracious and wonderful guy. And he spent most of the time just doting on my son and playing with him the, you know, the whole time that he was there. He loosened up his tie and he sort of got down on his hands and knees and just sort of goofed around with him. And uh, and my son, for the longest time, kept would ask afterwards, when is Ian coming back? When is Ian coming yeah. back? And to my everlasting shame, I didn't know that he was sick. I didn't know that there was an issue. And he's one of those guys that has been on my list for a long time. Of, you know, we're way overdue for a dinner or a lunch. And it just, when I found out that he had passed, it would just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, yeah. it was super hard. But one of the one of the funnier stories isn't actually even mine. It was my favorite story about Ian. He was he was quirky. He was interesting and odd, um, in a in just a fun, hilarious, uniquely Ian kind of way. You know, like animators are. It's like you know talking about Wes sort of having that sort of spacey thing. We're all like that. I mean, I don't mean to sort of single. I didn't mean to sort of single out Wes by saying that you know there was anything odd or unusual about him. We're, we are all kind of you know kids that 
we're lost in our dreams and our fantasies and spending a lot of time on our own drawing and stuff. So, so Ian was one of those guys who had this sort of unique point of view and his brain was working on a different wavelength. And so everything he thought of made sense to him, but it didn't always make sense when it came out of his mouth. And I think this is Alan's story actually, uh, if, if Alan told it, but I'll never forget. He went to Ian and he says, Hey, you went over to, you went over to that, um, uh, that little Italian place that you really liked How, is, did, did you recommend it? And Ian goes, Oh yeah, it's great. You want to go? And Alan goes, yeah, but I want I was going to take some friends of mine over there. And he goes, okay. And he said, do you want directions? And, and Alan goes, yeah. And he goes, do you want regular directions or do you want right turn only directions? And Alan is like, <laughs> uh, what? And Ian as a lot of people from the East coast are was just enamored of the fact that you could always make a right turn on a red and you didn't have to wait at a red light. So he had figured out how to get places by constantly going down streets and making right-hand turns. So he never had to stop. So he was prepared to write out a much longer series of directions for Alan to get to the restaurant by using the right-hand turn only directions. And, uh, and Ian, I mean, as, <laughs> As a person, I, I'm sure you heard this from other people, but he was just a, uh, a just a stunning, caring human being. He he, you, I'm sure you heard that he had a, a very close relationship with um, uh, uh, John um, Rice. No, oh, no, music, um, music from uh, all of the Star Wars music, all of the Indiana Jones films. Uh, oh, John Williams. Damn. He was John, he was yeah. re was really good friends with John Williams, and he actually helped uh with john williams mother to take care of her and you know visit her and take her places and 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 you know expecting nothing in return not like you know looking for any opportunities or anything and just because he knew her and he liked her but that was the kind of guy he was he would just he would he would look out for somebody's mom who needed help um and um yeah, it's uh, it's still hard, you know, to think about him yeah. as being gone. I guess partly because I didn't get to say goodbye. But um, him and Chris both. Chris, I found out Chris passed away on Facebook. Uh, mm -hmm. Chris Muller. He um, he had gotten incredibly sick, and he had just stopped contacting anybody. He and I used to get together all the time after tripping the rift and talk about doing other projects or working together on something new. Then one day he just disappeared, and I thought he was just avoiding me. But I talked to some of his other really good friends and he was avoiding all of them. We didn't know what had happened yeah. to him. And he he had gotten um ALS and moved mm -hmm. back east to to be close to his family as he was dying, because he had the bad kind that takes you yeah. within a year. So um he went back and and I remember getting up on New Year's Day, uh, I think it was 2014. 2014 or 2015 and um seeing on facebook that he had passed away and he was one of my closest friends in the business um we hung out all the time we had lunches and dinners regularly and we sold a show together a number one hit show on a, on a sci-fi channel you know it's like some of my best memories in the business are with chris and um so it was it was that was a hard one but ian ian was equally hard johnny was Johnny was hard, not, not as hard. Um, because like I said, we just didn't get to know each other on a personal level, the same way that I did Ian. And, and but you, you just, these people that you did, it's the, one of the weird things about this town is you get really, really close to folks mm -hmm. in these very short, intense periods of time while you're working on a 
nonstop on some show or other, whether it's TV or film or whatever. And, and then you may not see each other again for 10 or 15 years. And then when you run into each other, it's like no time has passed and it's so great to see everybody, but, but you can, because of the way this entire industry goes, you can go all that time without ever coming across them again. Like I, I never thought I would never, I would not see Ian again. Mm-hmm. And I, and now I'm horrified that I didn't make more of an effort to get together with him. But at the same time, you know, he, that's this town. That's one of the, I mean, and it's one of the things that I think a lot of people are facing with this strike now is that we work way too hard all yes. the time. Um, it's that it is that work-life balance and and as much as we love it and as much as we love the people that we work with and the creativity and all the shared stuff that you were talking about about that makes it a joy the the learning the experiences um that's not a good enough reason to give up your your entire social and human life oh um, absolutely you know absolutely so. uh there's um you know, I got one more question for you, but I think this is a, because we had talked about what we're talking about right now uh, earlier in the episode as well. And uh, you ever watch the show The Bear on FX? No. All right. So it's a it's a new show that everybody's talking about. Uh, there's two seasons and um, it centers around if you ever watch that show Shameless. I never watched Shameless, but it's uh, one of the main characters from that show is in this one. And it's about this guy. His brother starts a restaurant in Chicago. Um you know, that brother ends up dying, um, ends up killing himself. And then the guy, his name is Carmi. He went and he wanted to work for his older brother, the one that committed suicide, wanted to work for his older brother, but his older brother kept saying, no, 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 no. So to get back at his older brother, essentially, he went and worked at every big restaurant in the country, every big restaurant in the world. So he could say, Hey, I'm good enough to work for you. I'm good enough to work with you. I want to open up this restaurant with you. Um, So he comes back from working at all these places and it's him trying to pick up the pieces from his, his brother, his hero, the guy he looked up to the most killing himself in this industry that is extremely destructive. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can draw a lot of correlations from the culinary side to the animation side. We're, I always, I always tell everybody whenever the, whenever anybody asks me what it's like to work in the industry, I was like, dude, we're a bunch of swashbuckling pirates. When you look at it, like we, it's, it's drug addled, it's alcohol addled, you know, it's very little sleep. It's high pressure. It's 110 miles an hour at a time. There's no stopping once the train gets going. Right. It's so it's like, you could literally blink and it's like, holy shit, it's Friday. Like every day this week has blurred into the next, mainly because I'm only getting like five hours of sleep a night if I'm lucky. And half the time that's not consistent sleep. It's like a 30 minutes here, an hour and a half there, 15 minutes here because we've got the baby. So she's getting up. We got a toddler. He gets up every once in a while. I'm always making sure everybody's okay and shit, you know, so it's very, very hard um, a hard job, just like animation. You work so much, you work so hard because that's what the job requires that you take. If you take, if you take fucking five seconds off, that's you're adding 15 minutes to the end of your day type of thing. So if you take your foot off the gas, just a little bit, it's going to add up at the end. And this show, the bear that everybody's talking about now is the first time I've seen a show that's based on the cooking industry that makes you feel like you're in the industry, right? Like they, they, the biggest thing for us, like the biggest thing for you guys is time. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go. And they put that forefront in the show, right? That's front and center in the show. And it wasn't until the second season where, 
you know, the restaurant spoiler, the restaurants closed down, they're getting ready to reopen it. So they're starting to send all of the staff to these places that they want to specialize in. They're called stages. So you would go and it's kind of like an internship. You would go and work at a restaurant or a bakery if you were in the pastry side or bread side, and you would learn from a master. And then you would incorporate that back to your restaurant, right? You usually go someplace you work for free. Sometimes you go and live with somebody that the, the restaurant is sending you from, like the restaurant you work for to go send you to. They might know somebody that area that way you can stay with them so you don't have to pay for rent or you don't have to pay for like a hotel or anything like that but there's a scene in there where this guy um i think his name is marcus he's the uh pastry chef at the restaurant the, at the bear right so he goes over to copenhagen and he's working with this pastry chef the guy that played um adam warlock in the guardians of the galaxy movie yeah um, something poltier or whatever his name is um he's playing the pastry chef that's in copenhagen and he hit something that was so poignant, so beautiful. And it was it was what you talked about and what we've talked about a couple of times throughout this episode. It's like you've got to have that balance. He was like, if you're not he, – he, tell, he tells Marcus, he's like, if you don't go out there and experience the food, experience the life, experience the culture – when you come back in here, everything is muted. Everything is gray. Everything – there's no life, right? You need to bring – the life experiences that you're trying out there and implement that because that's how you get influence. That's how you get inspiration. Yeah. That's how you get recharged. That's how you bring everything back. That's why what you do makes meaning because you're taking, absorbing the culture, you're taking and absorbing the food, the people, you get to hear what people think. You get to hear what people say. You get to hear what people feel and you get to put that into whatever your art form is. And I've lit, I've thought about that so much. Because the first seven and a half years of my adult life, I was in the military. So I lost a lot of time with my family. And now I'm starting to see that kind of creep in again, not to the extent of what it was, but it, it's it's long days in the kitchen, you know, so I'm kind of starting to see that creep in. And then I have to step in every so often and say, hey, man, for my like, I need to be with my kids. I need to be with my wife. I need to be able to play with my dogs. I need to be able to as stupid as this sounds. I need to be able to cut my yard. I love going outside and sparking a joint and mowing my yard because I get to zone out for an hour and a half and I get to make sure I'm like Hank Hill. I get to make sure my lines are even, I get to edge up, I get to weed eat. That's like my Zen moment outside of a kitchen, you know? So I, I can't, I can't stress it enough, ladies and gentlemen, please don't work yourself to death. Get out there and do the things that we're telling you to do, man, which is go see the people you want to work with. Go see the people that you've worked with and your friends have a life outside of work. It's not all about work, sleep, work, sleep. Cause then, like that, you're gone. Like life is very quickly, ladies. Life, life goes very quickly, ladies and gentlemen. So please enjoy it. Um, and and it's not. It's important not just for that. I mean, for the the people in your lives, that it, it's really important. But even for the creativity, like you were talking yes. about, like you got to bring it back in to recharge, but to to also to bring. I mean, it's one of the reasons why everybody's talking about AI is going to take over the world. AI is not going to take over the world, and nobody's it's not going to replace anybody's creative job in this business because it has no experience. It doesn't do things. It is learning from other people's experiences online. And so all of those experiences are generally retread experiences. And the way I, AI works, it's usually looking for the top 10 uh, responses or, or answers out there. So it's feeding you back somebody else's rehashed, redone crap. Mm -hmm. So the only way that anybody in this business or any other is going to get real genuine creativity is by going to people who have real genuine human experiences. So 
So that's my t- 10 cents on the on the whole AI thing, but it, it ties into exactly the same thing. You have to have that stuff in order to be valuable uh, in, in the kitchen or in the, the editing bay. Absolutely. I, I can't, I can't uh, agree with you more, man. So last question. Um, when you sit back and you think about your time and your tenure on King of the Hill, can you sum up your experience in one word, one phrase, one sentence, man? If you think about King of the Hill, what's the first emotion or first words that come to mind when you think about that beautiful series? It's always genius. Genius is always the first word that pops into my head. But it's also, for me personally, it was transformative. Mm-hmm. It took me from being somebody who is an observer to somebody who sees his ability to be a contributor. So it was trans. It was a, the entire experience was transformative from the people that I knew and the, the the time and the attention and the consideration that they gave me from you know uh, everyone there to the friendships that I made to the the things the opportunities that I I got in the future and the the career that I've had I mean I've been a producer for 10 years now and um, I still refer back to a lot of the stuff that I learned then so transformative for me personally absolutely beautiful and uh what a what a what a great way to to end it man uh like I said Chuck I've really been looking forward to this chat all week um you know you've come up quite a few times with quite a few people um I think the first time I ever heard your name was uh Josh Tabak uh Tabak oh Josh um, yeah yeah uh shit probably earlier in the year he had he had brought your name up he's like yeah if you want to do King of the Hill this is one of the guys you got to get and I think Alan had m- mentioned your name as well and there's been a couple people that have uh name dropped you so I'm, I'm finally I'm glad we finally got to sit down and and talk because like I said I I've 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 been so influenced by King of the Hill um, and after we get off this, I actually want to mention something about comic books. Um, but I've been so influenced by King of the Hill for the last 20 plus years, man. It, it's w- without this show, you know, my life is a lot duller than it is. I mean, I'm, I've got orange going because of mainly because of, uh, Dale's hat, Dale's, you know, Mac hat was orange. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of orange in, in King of the Hill. Um, you know, so it's this, this show means so much to me and I know it means so much to so many others. So, Thank you for contributing to such a fantastic childhood and now an adulthood for me. And now, hopefully, if my son's smart enough, he'll actually listen to dad for just this one second. Hayden, I'm talking to you. Watch King of the Hill with me, man, because you're going to enjoy it just as much as I did at your age, man. Well, uh, he's been Chuck. I've been Julian. It's been the What's in My Head podcast, and this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night.